Uh, yeah. I'm ready. Okay. We're probably going to do that too, yes. I thought that was like the thing. That is the thing, but I want to start with that with something else first. Yes, totally. Okay. Welcome to the Basin Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Stephen Zuber. I'm Jessica Dickey. And we're going to start out with a question that is very pertinent to us today. Uh, someone emailed us. I forget who, and I don't have the email up right now. Crystal. Was it Crystal? Do you know what email I'm about to quote? I assume so. Okay. The email said, who is Jess? That's the one. Okay. Yeah. So oh, we're going to start out with this. Okay. <laughs> we're going to start with saying, Jess, we are we finally made it official. You are actual uh, third co-host now for good. Like, no longer just this <laughs> guest spot bullshit, you know, show up if you want to. Now you're stuck with us. But uh, oh, no. welcome to the show. No, this is fun. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm really happy about this. Yeah. And so who are you? Um, my background. I'm from New Jersey, and I used to attend the Philadelphia Less Wrong meetups. Now that I'm in Denver, I'm attending these Denver ones. Um, my work background is really varied. I just have lots of interests. So I have a Bachelor of Arts. Uh, I used to make soap. Like, uh, if you know the company Lush, we, I did like something similar with handmade soap, lotions, bath salts. All I could think uh, of was Fight Club. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yeah, no, it was, I actually quit because the manager and the uh, director of the place were really scary. Using I loved making fat. the products and I, maybe. Oof. Um, <laughs> uh, I also uh, worked for a restaurant as a sous chef for a bit. And uh, then I spent six years in game design. I was working on mobile and web games for Microsoft, Disney, and then I was in a startup. And most recently I was a librarian, and now I just uh, graduated from a clinical research school, and I'm interning at a clinical research facility here in Denver, and I'm hoping to get hired soon as a clinical research coordinator. That is a lot. I'm, I'm not sure exactly where to start. Let's start with uh, how did you hear about, get into this whole rationality thing? Well, like a lot of people, I found out about it from Methods of Rationality. Shout out. <laughs> how, so how'd you, okay, for starters, how did you find out about Methods of Rationality? Actually, I was a really big fan of the uh, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast, uh, and yeah. one of the co-hosts mentioned it in the notes at one point. Uh, they were like, used to have like little recommendations of things to read. And like, oh, the, and then there's this weird like rationalist Harry Potter fanfic that is really cool. I started reading it, and I just it was on fanfic.net, and I just assumed it was some like smart-ass college kid writing it. <laughs> and eventually, like I looked it up, and there was a Wikipedia, and it said it was Eliezer Yukowski, who I'd heard of in some other form. And I was like, wait a minute, why is this guy writing Harry Potter fanfic? <laughs> Last I, I heard he was respectable. Trying, <laughs> Last I heard he's trying to like save the world with like uh, robots or something, right? <laughs> like if you just from the you know tertiary point of view. Mm. I no, I was like, this is awesome. Nice. <laughs> I was actually like, a more intellectuals should write Harry Potter fanfic. Hell yeah! I think that's his cap on uh, TV tropes is like, dear God, the future of humanity is in the hands of someone who writes fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> really, everyone should write fan fiction at least once. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing to do. Worth a shot. Yeah. So you got into reading into the Harry Potter stuff, and then from there you found Less Wrong? Yeah, I found the sequences from uh, the Methods of Rationality. I think uh, he was directly linking, and some of the titles were directly based on the uh, sequences. Hmm. And at the time, I kind of was like, I love this fanfic. Wow, this is so nerdy and cool. And then I would like l jump over to the sequences and be like, I understand 20%, 30% of this. This is hard. I'm going to come back to this later. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, went in and out of that and kind of just kept coming back to less wrong. And uh, I felt like I was just like absorbing more and more of it over time. Awesome. And I actually like super got into less wrong <laughs> after I started reading Gorn.net. Ah. Uh, Gorn is my hero and actually like has a lot to do with why I became interested in clinical research. Oh. With his uh, N of one studies, yeah, right? So, um, how how long ago was this? <laughs> I'm making a face. Um, I don't remember. I don't know. I think it was um maybe like 
2010, 2011, cool. when I first found out about that. I, when did Methods of Rationality come out? Because it was like... That sounds about right. Yeah. It wrapped up in 2014, and there were like a couple of like slow years. So yeah. It stopped for a while. It was so upsetting because I thought it was done. Mm-hmm. It's just like, like a great... Yeah, no, abandoned. Yeah. It's another one of those things where it's like, it, it's so cool, and then it's just like they disappear, and you never hear from them again, and they never write anything again. Yeah. <laughs> like, please come back and write more. But uh, yeah, that, that's it. I don't know. So the the... God, I had a question, and it just completely spaced my mind because I was trying to figure out the timeline of Methods Rationality. You nerd sniped me, damn it. Um, I'm right there with you. I'm trying to think of years. I'm doing math in my head, and it's not adding up. No. I'm imagining that meme where, like, it's like a dog looking at different, like, the Pythagorean theorem and <laughs> some algebra. Steven's looking it up, huh? Yep. Nice. I'm going to solve this one. Excellent. Started February 28th, 2010. Okay. Oh. oh, and it went through March uh, 2015, not not 14. That's right. Okay. Yeah, but it was March. I, it was Pi Day. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Neat. Um, so, yeah, uh, you got into the rationality thing, like, really hard fast then, it sounds like. Um, I guess. I don't know what how long um, Less Wrong had been around before Methods of Rationality. Uh, been a little while. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of people actually jumped the bandwagon after Methods of Rationality, so I'm, like, right there with a lot of people. It's, I think, like, a third of the community came from that. <laughs> that was also kind of the point. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I assume it was also fun at parts anyway where it didn't feel like work writing it. But yeah. I think that he said that was one of the reason for the big sl- stop right near the, you know, three-fourths point. He just stopped being fun and started being work. Well, then we kind of all counted on him and, I guess, browbeat <laughs> him into finishing it. So. Yeah. Well, positive peer pressure is fantastic for motivation. Yeah. But you said you were in New Jersey then. How's the rational scene there? Oh, 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 that's right. That was the question I was going to ask. People are always asking us, what the hell is rationality good for? Was there, like, changes to your life before, after? Was it any good for anything? Yeah, absolutely. I, like, it changed my career path recently. Um, and before then, I found uh, the Philadelphia Less Wrong group. I don't know if there's anything in New Jersey. I think there's um, a group in Princeton, which is cool, but I didn't know about them, and I didn't actually end up hanging out with any of them before I moved, which is kind of a shame. But, um... Yeah, I, like, made friends through the community. Uh, I met you guys through the community. Part yeah. of, like, you know, the reason why I moved here is because I met a bunch of cool people through Rationality, so that was awesome. Friendly reminder that you also made the art for our show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then I went to the Solstice in um, New York as well, and, like, now I'm still Facebook friends with a bunch of people I met there, and that was really kind of formative. Awesome. That was two years ago? Mm-hmm. Well, um, two and then three, because I've been to two of them. Okay. Well, welcome to Denver. We're glad you're here. Thanks. I love Denver. Yay. Everybody here is super nice. It's actually like still creeping me out. <laughs> really? The fact that I can just put my turn signal on and then like people will let you into traffic is such a culture shock. Huh. I have like a 60% success rate doing that. So I guess like, The fact that it happens at all That's is just fair. shocking to me. <laughs> In New Jersey, people will just run you off the road. Yeah. How do you switch lanes? You just have to play chicken. <laughs> Jesus. It, it really is a nightmare to drive in places where people are aggressive like that, which is... It's, I still see it on the highway basically every time I'm on the interstate, but like people will just force their way up 40 feet so that you can't get over, but then they're only 40 feet closer to their destination than they would be otherwise. And that just drives me nuts. Like we're all in this together. We're all going to be on the highway for like another hour. What time are you saving? What percentage of your trip? Like nothing. And you just risk both of our lives. Maybe it's more fun. For them. <laughs> that's, the thing is like, that's true. The other thing about the interstate system in Denver is that like when you enter the interstate, you usually have... It depends on the entrance, but a lot of them you have like 800 feet to get to 70 and get on before you hit a brick wall and die. So yeah. like when people don't let you on on the main exit that I get on, on it's it's like 
it's not life or death. I could just slam my brakes and stop on the shoulder, but yeah. that sounds really stupid and dangerous. So just it, people are weird. There's a few there's a few exits here in Denver that are just awfully designed, done like in the 70s before anyone knew anything about mm. traffic or some shit. I don't know. Your roads here are so well designed compared to what I'm used to on the East Coast. Dude, Sixth Avenue on Wadsworth. Oh, that is a terrible, terrible ramp. Take take a weekend in Fort Collins, just like an hour north of here. I they, have been to Fort Collins, and do, actually it was fine. They spend, <laughs> it seems like they spend everything on just keeping the roads super nice up there. Oh, but, okay. Yeah. I, I thought you were going to talk shit. I was like, actually, oh, no. like, no, I was no, able I, to get everywhere. It was I lived great. in Fort Collins for like 25 years. It's great. Yeah. Um, It's, uh, yeah, it was it was great. But I like I mentioned, just the, the roads are night and day. Yeah. Um, this is obviously all the, the roads here. Of the show. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no way. Um, all the roads here are really nice. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that there's more space. I find driving really boring, and now there's podcasts and audiobooks. But when I was a teenager, the way I made it less boring was to like race. Same. And yeah, I wasn't racing anyone in specific, but I was just like, how fast can I get there? What happens if I try to slalom through these cars? And I never had that mentality. Mm-hmm. I listened to a lot of Dragon Force while driving in my teens, and it would just be like, <laughs> I did that just too. Pumped you up. Yeah. But, um, how no, did you I do would... it? Not get all pumped up and want to race? No, I was still pumped up, but like I was oh, okay. kind of envisioning like killing demons with swords in my head and ah. just driving normally. Okay. So I've always been paranoid about cars because they're, you know, one of the main things that kill people. And also, yeah. two of my best friends were killed in a car accident. Oh when i was uh in my first year of college jesus so even worse now i'm just like a very defensive driver well that's yeah that's the way it should that's the way that people should respond to cars i have only recently well not recently i guess like in the last five years gotten really conservative with how i drive just very uh i don't know grandma style good grandma driving not like blind grandma driving (laughs) Like I, I, I was kind of like I let I let everybody in. I'm in no rush. I don't I never gun it, you know, unless I'm trying to dodge something or make it, you know, hit the speed on the interstate or something. But um yeah, it's I delivered pizzas through college and then drove a lot for my last job and I'm just I just totally burned out on road rage. I realized the difference between raging the whole time and not was like three minutes and I'm mm-hmm. like, eh. It's not worth it. It makes, like, no difference. Like, yeah. the people that speed make me so upset because I'm like, you're going to get where you're going maybe, like, five minutes earlier than you would have. Just calm down. It's not worth it. Mm. <laughs> it's not worth the risk to your life and other people's lives and property damage and just why are you doing this to yourself and everyone? I just thought it was more fun. The cops finally beat it out of me with enough tickets. I, I got one big ticket at some point, and it was uh, a drag. I, I had four big tickets, and after the fourth one, I was like, I just cannot afford this anymore. After the fifth one, they probably took your license away. You only I, get so many speeding tickets. Well, it, was, they... it wasn't all in one year. Oh, okay. But, I mean, it, it got to the point where if there were people driving behind me, and they, you know how there's the posts on the road sometimes holding up the side railing? And if there's a car, like, driving through that, and the headlights go through the posts, so, like, it flickers, mm. it kind of looked like cop lights flickering and like my adrenaline would spike and my heart rate would go up and i was like, <gasps> and I was like oh, I, this this is no good i can't do this anymore <laughs> <laughs> yeah the worst ticket i got was when i was driving to college eating a banana and a state trooper pulled me over and was like ha distracted driving i was like <laughs> but i didn't eat breakfast banana. and then he's like oh you know what you've got a little stuffed cat on your dashboard that's uh that's obstructed vision so i'm gonna have to write you up for that too was he just fucking with you no, he actually gave me a ticket for it, and I just drove to college really mad. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> it was also, I should mention, a cop that hit my friends and killed them in that car accident. So, like, I don't love cops. Did you... That particular cop should be, like, 
not a cop. <laughs> I was going to say worse things, but then I was like, I shouldn't say worse things. But I think not a cop is a fair way to put it. At very least not a cop and probably spend some time in jail or some shit. This, this guy sounds awful. It was not the same cop. Oh, I should, oh, I should oh. Maybe point that okay. out. <laughs> oh, I thought you said that it was. No, I said okay. it was like also a cop. Oh, uh, I thought you said yeah. also the cop. Yeah. Okay. No, it's just I've, I've, I've had bad experiences. Yeah, with no, cops, totally. Which mm-hmm. I think a lot of people have had, but. Mine's been mixed. I mean, obviously my selection is ba- is biased. I've had cops pull me over like desperate to give me a ticket, but then they couldn't. And then I've had cops that totally could, and I was apologetic and stupid. And you know, like, uh, <laughs> there was one time I was driving my mom's car. And I had like three other people in the car. One was my twin brother in the back seat. And we get pulled over because I thought that the left lane was like a go through the light lane, not a left turn only. Mm. Well, it was left turn only. So I go blazing into oncoming traffic. Mm. And then the guy that I kind of cut off to, you know, save everyone's lives, he just pulls over immediately to let the cop behind him pull me over <laughs> before his lights were even on. Okay. And then the guy yeah. comes out and he was like, and I explained to him what, what happened and, you know, whatever. And I couldn't find the registration. Someone in the car was calling my mom because I couldn't find it. Like, it's not my car, it's my mom's, she knows we have it, I'm just trying to find it. Mm-hmm. And so I hand him my license, and he was he looks at it, and he's just like, how do I know this is you? And I'm like, blink, because I look like the guy in the picture? <laughs> like, I thought that's why they had pictures. He was like, I was always so worried that someone's going to ask that question, like, prove this is you and your ID. And it's like, um, do you want to take my, like, DNA? I don't know. Yeah, there's literally nothing. I could, you can ask me a survey of the information on the, on the license, or you can look at the picture and look at me. I changed but, my hair a lot. So I always look different in licenses. <laughs> but the, the funny thing was I told him, I was like, because I look like the guy in the picture. And he's like, well, you, you know, someone else could look like the guy in the picture. <laughs> and I was like, I guess just my twin brother. And I point to the back seat. And he's like, oh, you've got a twin? And he leans in with the flashlight. And um, he didn't give me a ticket. But it was he, you know, I think it was jovial enough where he could have. And it wasn't <laughs> like I was I was being, I don't know. It was reckless through like, neg- I don't know what do you call it. It wasn't like reckless endangerment. It was right, just right. like I misread the lines, whatever. Yeah. But mm. yeah, mild incompetence. There you go. Yeah, if, if mild incompetence was a ticketable offense, nobody'd be driving. So. <laughs> no. Um. Yeah, I think we talked about this before. Like, I'm kind of on board with Stephen, where like I don't hate cops though. <laughs> just I feel like um I kind of was just really negative about cops for no reason there. But like I also was a volunteer EMT for a while. I worked pretty closely with cops. There are good cops. It just tends to be one of those careers where you can attract some really awful people who want to abuse power, just like politics. And then but I think. Perry Nyash's point on that that he made that I think swayed me a bit was like the fact that the institution doesn't shut that shit down really is reflective on the, oh, yeah. the the institution as a whole. Individual officers vary, you know, their mileage may vary, but yeah, I mean the fact that, you know, people can do horrendous things and be caught and they get, you know, the joke is they get a paid vacation, but often that's the case or they get, you know, no punishment or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what happened to that woman who went into the wrong apartment and killed that dude, what, a few months ago? Right, yeah. Um, but, you know, that that sort of thing happens not that infrequently and the i don't know it's it's like trumpian to say like hey you know if you're investigating us let me provide you you know the opposite of like kind of what the administration does right where it's like if if you're if you have integrity and you want to actually do the right thing you say let me provide you everything we've got i want the responsible parties sacked as well this has been terrible Mm -hmm. but instead the you know you hide stuff you lie you delete footage whatever um yeah if you're doing that sort of stuff you're not on the up and up no the cops, the, the cop singular who killed my friends, uh, was on suicide watch, was doing 70 miles per hour on a 35 mile per hour road, hmm. and ran a red light supposedly chasing someone, and then just hit them, drove their car into another car, and also like really seriously injured a dad and his kids Jeez. in the other van. And then he just kind of got off with a little slap on the wrist, and everybody was like, oh, that poor cop. Hmm. <laughs> I was working for someone at the time who was like, 
friends with this cop and was like, that poor man, he didn't deserve to have such a terrible thing happen to him. And I was, I'd quit. Yeah. I had to quit that job. After you killed your coworker or? No, after the, after that. Um... Oh, I made a joke that your coworker didn't get away oh. from this. Like in like hot coffee oh, splash man, on the face or something. It, yeah. yeah. Actually, it was a coffee shop. Yeah. <laughs> I was working with a lot of coffee grinders and I was just kind of like. <laughs> Lucky you had self-control. <laughs> this coffee is you. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. I probably have more self-control than I should because I should have actually like talked back to her, but instead I just quietly fumed and then just quit for no reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Better than what I could have done. Yeah, there's there's a line, I I guess the you know Aristotelian golden mean between like, you know, savagely murdering them on the spot right. and not doing anything. Yeah. But or just calling them out. Yeah, you if could I just say more fuck you and here's why. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> fuck you, I'm quitting because you're a jerk. But that level of confidence is hard to get to. You know, it's the kind of thing you think of to say later, right? So I know. Mm-hmm. There's been a number of times I regretted not saying something in my life. Oh, that's, I think, like, super typical, right? Yeah. I think there's even a word for it. There's a word for everything in German, but, like, staircase wit is what they call it. <laughs> it's whatever the translation is, where it's, like, well, when you're leaving the room later, you're, like, fuck, I should have said that. Yeah, I think, yeah. Uh, but that's, like, different from regretting not having stood up for someone. You oh, know? sure, sure. Yeah. yeah, that's more important, yeah, mm. and more serious. I think I'm always worried about saying the wrong thing in the moment. I'm like specifically thinking of this one time I was in Starbucks and this guy was just being a huge jerk to the barista for no reason. And I was right behind him and I was like, I need to say something, but I can't really think of the right thing to say. And then he'll just be mean to me. So I'll just like ignore it. <laughs> and then later I was like kicking myself. It's like, I should have said something as opposed to just standing there and like being wide eyed. I've done that. And then what I've done usually, I don't usually, I don't think I've ever confronted somebody being an asshole, like to somebody else in public like that. But I'll, if I'm like next in line, I'd be like, man, that guy sucks. Yeah. Sorry he's a <laughs> fucking prick. You know, here's an extra couple bucks or something if I can. But. I would have said that, but the verse actually like ran away crying and then somebody oh, else came geez. and I was just like, well. <laughs> that sucks. I was actually also kind of concerned that this guy was going to get violent. He was just being very wild and crazy in public. So that's always something that you're kind of like, should I speak up? Um, yeah, that's... Is this going to, like, become an altercation? That's unsettling. Yeah. I was really impressed with uh, Drake a few months ago. We were in a Chipotle, and some guy pulled into the handicapped spot and ran into the store. And, you know, he ran in behind us. And Drake was like, oh, you got your temporary tags? It's like, what? Your temporary handicap tags? You're, they're not hanging on there. You probably should put them up. It's like, no, man, I'm not handicapped. And And Drake was like, then why are you parking in the handicapped spot? It's like, look, I'm just running in for a burrito, you jerk. And Drake's like, I'm the jerk? It's <laughs> yeah. a handicapped spot, not a temporary parking spot. You prevented somebody who is handicapped from being able to access the burrito place as well now. Come on. Right. And I mean, no one who was handicapped came in in that time, but that's not, you know. That's not the point. Exactly. Yeah. And I was just like, I probably would have said nothing. So the fact that he was there just willing to be like calling the dude, I was like, that's awesome, man. And yeah. then, you know, if you could rally behind him because there's already that focal point or somebody doing something. Right. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. There needs to be more critical mass of people like that to catalyze those things. Yeah. Yeah, I admire that kind of personality type. Alrighty. Shall we get into the episode or do we want to talk more about Jess? Oh, oh. God. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about anything else. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, there was a segue. I'm not that interesting. No, you're good. There was There was a segue from traffic to something... We got a question a while ago, and I, I, maybe there's a way to do a whole episode on it that wouldn't be just super meandery, but what I've been trying to do is just plug it every time I can think of something, mm-hmm. which is like, how do you do rationality in your day-to-day life? Mm-hmm. And one of them is the, that I just kind of thought of when we were talking about traffic is like, I don't text and drive anymore. And I, I only for a while would like, you know, do it while actually moving, but you know, I do it at stoplights or at stop signs. And then the light turns and then, yeah, yeah. you're doing it for the first. Exactly. For the first few seconds. And those are kind of critical. So... 
it's just one of those things like I feel perfectly safe. I feel like I'm in charge and that I'm 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 cognizant of everything. But everybody feels that. Well, I'm assuming most people yeah. feel that way behind the wheel, right? No one's like, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm mm-hmm. Snapchat, well, Snapchatting everyone, or whatever. Uh, self-reports as being a good driver. Right. But obviously there's like a scale of drivers. <laughs> I don't. I, I've been told by enough people that I drive like an asshole that I fully admit that I'm probably a bad driver and I drive like an asshole. I think bad driver and asshole driver, like how many accidents have you been in slash caused? Caused? I think I rear-ended a person one time. And you've been driving for like 20 years? Yeah. yeah I think that's that's a fair record. But I mean, like I drove into a tree once and... No, I, I rear-ended two people. Uh, one time though, it was just like on massive ice and... Oh, that's nobody's fault. I suppose... I. I could have driven more carefully, right? But Meh. I just started, I, I hit, you know, pushed my brakes and my car just didn't stop. And yeah. I was like, well, I guess I'm going in that guy's bumper. Yeah, no, it happens. That's how my last car got totaled was the guy who hit me. was a perfect gentleman about it, though. And his car was fine. He drove a, I think it was a 2015 Forester. And uh, like it might have cracked his license plate cover. So now that's what Rachel drives. I'm super happy that she's, all, <laughs> that she's safe in there. So, um, But the reason I brought up cars was that I, I trust the fact, I trust the numbers that people aren't safe when texting and driving. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, I, I will occasionally do it at stoplights, but if the light turns green, I set it down where I can't see it before I like hit the gas. Cool. So I don't, I don't finish, I don't do whatever, but it's just the, uh, what am I trying to say? I'm accepting the numbers over my own, my own judgment because mm-hmm. my judgment there is flawed. Mm-hmm. So just the capacity to do that is kind of an example. This is, you know, we are just talking methods of rationality too. Sort of that. What um, is the methods of rationality or, you know, all the, all the little things that Harry's constantly monologuing about in the story mm-hmm. are largely things people can do in their day-to-day lives. Um, you know, not privileging hypothesis, uh, n- you know, actually stopping and analyzing the problem for five minutes before trying to solve it. Yeah, I've taken a lot of that to heart. Um, yeah. Rationality differently made like a pretty big impact on my life where actually going to my Philadelphia Less Wrong meetup, I, I was talking about like we'd had a bunch of calibration meetups especially on new years we would do like the whole uh let's make predictions on various like political and like world uh news things and then we'll like calibrate them next year and i was told by like my group leader i don't know we don't have titles but uh, the guy who organizes the meetups was like oh you're you actually seem like you're like kind of pathologically underconfident and i was like no i'm not and then like i like thought about it i did a bunch of decision advisor stuff i'm well I'm going to plug Decision Advisor again. I love them. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm super underconfident in, like, everything in my life, actually. <laughs> and this is actually a cognitive bias. Hmm. I always thought of it as being, like, a rational underconfidence. Because I was like, everybody else in the world is super overconfident. But I'll be more successful than everybody if I'm underconfident about everything. Turns out that there's, like, a happy medium. Yeah. So I've been trying to take more risks lately. I've actually been making monetary bets with people about things to try to calibrate better. Cool. And it's actually made, like, a pretty big difference in a lot of regions of my life. Five That's bucks awesome. say your prediction estimates don't go up in the next year. I don't know. <laughs> Take I, you up on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's really cool. All right, now you get to plug one, Inyash. What do you do rationally that oh, makes shit. you better than, not better than, superior? No, <laughs> hold on. <laughs> I'm How jo- are you I'm, better than the muggles? I'm exa- oh, that's, that's what I was going to jokingly say, and then I was jokingly running with synonyms to better. But what do you do to try to better your own cognition and decision making? Or what? why do you care about rationality? Why are, why are we... Why do you read this stuff? Why are you... <laughs> you should come back to me. All right. <laughs> on this if you, one. If you want. Yeah. I'd say one thing that I've observed is that you... Well, I don't know if that's... Yeah, maybe. Like, the other thing that I kind of got was... It's, it's one of the jokier posts, but I think the message is one of the most 
like succinct in all the sequences i think it was the use the try harder luke yeah which is where oh, good one it's like a joking version of the script where yoda's trying to instruct luke to raise the x-wing out of the swamp and luke is like i can't do it meh, and stomps off in the movies but in this little script he's like okay well this senior of 900 years just told me i should be able to do it i'll actually try and he was like no don't try just do it and that that mentality of like I don't know, shut up and actually try. Yeah. There's there's another post shut up and do the impossible, which is awesome and inspiring. But I think the, the easier version of that and much more attainable to the average person is just shut up and try. Yeah. Like whatever the thing is, I mean, that was the main thing for me when I started doing software stuff was I just assumed it was too hard. And I was like, well, I never actually looked into it. And uh, a friend sent me a, a Python tutorial and it's like, oh, this is like written in English. I thought it was like all ones and zeros and like, you know, special characters and stuff. Oh. Um, like in the movies. That oh, was literally everything oh, I knew about programming. Okay. Yeah. So So how do you hack into the mainframe? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you always have to be like, I'm in. Yeah, and you've, you've got it. You, your fingers got to be going really fast. Yeah. You don't just call them and like ask, you know, or you don't like Facebook stalk them and find out the name of their pet or something. It's, it's kind of a <laughs> mini game where you have to type faster than the security guy on the other <laughs> side. <right. laughs> um, yeah, that's the other thing, too, that I always liked. Uh, you know, but like if you have your own private server for whatever reason and you notice like, you know, some sort of, of DDoS or some sort of, of traffic influx that's weird, the best security is you can just run over and unplug it. Yeah. Like you don't <laughs> sit there and like, oh, my God, what's happening? You're like, oh, fuck this mm-hmm. and turn the power off and, you know, you don't lose anything. So that's, I think, how a real hacker would win 10 times out of 10. Anyway, yeah. So the just try and do stuff. And so that is a really good one. It is. Yeah. And I, I mean, some things are pro- prohibitively expensive, you know, but not. I don't know of anything that's too hard to like sample that's yeah. super cheap, right? Um, like, you know, even like a ho- you know home improvement or something. It's like, well, try and restore a coffee table before you redo your floors, right? Yeah. And a coffee table, whatever, you're out 40 bucks if it's if you ruin it or something, right? So Turns out redoing floors is actually surprisingly easy. Well, see, I wouldn't have known. I would hmm. assume it's super hard. Now that I know that, that's actually really reassuring because we're definitely going to have to redo ours before we move out. So Yeah, okay. they make these nice laminates now that you can just snap together like a puzzle. Yeah, that's literally what this is. That's what I put in my first house. And it then like there's like a little soft uh, padding that you can put on the floor first, so it makes it really smooth. I heard a guy, uh, an installer, talking at the um, Home Depot while I was shopping for them to another guy where he was like, yeah, one of my clients saw me putting this in and used to be, you know, you had to do glue and gun staples and all this other stuff. And they saw me putting this stuff in and they're like, I could just do that myself. <laughs> <laughs> I hate this shit. It makes me look useless. <laughs> and then the installer was like, ha ha. Yeah. <laughs> You're paying me <laughs> to do Legos. It's very like, yeah, it's kind of similar to Legos. It was it was so satisfying putting that flooring in. It yeah. like actually has a little groove on the side, and they just snap together next to each other, and you can just do it in like, I I did like one room in under an hour. We were just like snapping them together. <laughs> yeah. The challenging parts was like where the fireplace is because that's at an angle, and I had yeah. to cut things. If and you do have an irregularly sized floor, room, right? the what? That rock goes all the way to the floor. Yeah. Or is there a baseboard? Uh, well, I mean, mm, there's there's like a little quarter round. Yeah, it's janky over there. All the all the doors are pain in the butt. Like the door between the kitchen and the bathroom, that was that was difficult. But yeah, aside from a few areas where you get the challenge points in, it's just snap, snap and go. Nice. Yeah. Anyway, little things like that. Right. Yeah, a lot of underconfidence kind of relates to that too. Where I had this fear of failure and this fear fear of disappointing people around me for so long, and it was just like, what what's the actual consequences if you try this thing and fail? 
Oh, it's, it's usually, oh, I know that one. Yeah, it's usually never that you're going to die. It's usually, or like, be maimed or like, outcast from society. It's like, people might be disappointed in you, and that is actually pretty like, upsetting, especially if it's like your family or whatever. But like, the worst part is when no one's die. even disappointed because they don't know. Is that bad or if they don't know? What was I going to say? Um, I guess it depends on the, the scale of what it is you're trying to do. You know, if you're trying to, I don't know, whatever, learn how to think of something, like, fix your car. Sure. Like, who's going to be disappointed in you other than yourself? It's like, I thought I could do this, and I couldn't, so. Yeah, um, yeah and then what do you do? You, like, take it to the shop afterwards, and then they're like, oh, no, this is how you do it. And you're yeah. like, oh. Which is what you're going to do <laughs> anyway, fine. but you try to do it yourself first. You know, I guess what I'm getting at is, like, so few things have, like, a, a well, not so few, but most things that I think, certainly I was nervous about five years ago, more. They're not nearly scary at all. They're just, uh, they're a thing. Sorry. No. I'm going to skip this one, because that noise was, uh, I'm doing a... I've, my, I've got a twin brother. We've been doing longitudinal twin studies since we were, like, really small. Yeah. Cool. They sent us each uh, phone, and it beeps us three times a day. And it's basically, this one's studying, like, all right, how stressed were you since the last survey two hours ago? Hmm. What have you been up to? And, all right, now do these quick cognitive assessments. Okay. And it's kind of fun. Cool. Um, I like doing these things because I always love seeing the, uh, like, oh, this such and such is, you know, X percent inheritable. Well, this is the kind of way that they find that out is yeah. by testing identical twins and seeing how they compare to each other. So, is this the three times a day thing? It's not like permanent, right? There's spurts of it. No, this for the uh, started on Monday. It's going to go through week from next or whatever two weeks. Okay. Yeah. Oh, if it was all the time, I would make them just give me an app on my phone. <laughs> right. This thing is way too cumbersome for me to be carrying around. It's it's sucking up valuable pocket real estate. Yeah. If it wasn't winter, I'd be at a complete loss. If I didn't have coat pockets <laughs> to offload into. Yeah. I didn't know you were in a study. How did you uh, enroll? Did you seek the study out, or did someone approach you? They must have contacted my parents. I mean, we've been doing it since before I remember. You know, so we had been three or four or five. Interesting. I think we're the earliest ones. Um, so it's in uh, CU Boulder. They have yeah, I wonder about people who have identical twins if, like, researchers just kind of wait outside their house <laughs> with clipboards, because, like... <laughs> Would you like to take a survey? Twin yeah. studies are so important. They are. I don't know how my parents got into it, because they must have gotten some flyer. Probably from uh, the hospital, actually. Maybe, yeah. And maybe they got some, you know, a couple hundred bucks. I don't know. Like, I think that's the most I've ever been paid was $200. Um, maybe they got those when we were really little. Because I don't know what would have made they motivated them to spend a whole day driving down to Boulder and spend their day sitting around doing nothing. Uh, they usually compensate you. Yeah. But not, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, or, like, must pay got, for your travel. Yeah, last summer, uh, my brother and I got MRIs, uh, fMRIs, while we did some super boring tests. <laughs> but I was excited about that because I tried to get an fMRI when I was at CSU because I was pretty sure I had brain damage from all the times I've been hit in the head. Oh. And I'm bad at, like, faces. I can't understand words and music. Like, there's a lot of things. Like, other people can do this. Words and music uh, are hard to understand. Well, that's, right. that's why they used to have liner notes. Fair enough. Nowadays, so, they have the Google. Well, so it's not just me. No, it's uh, everyone. Although it is me more than it's other people. Like, I can listen to popular stuff, and I can ask Rachel, and she'd be like, that's what they said. And I'm like, oh, okay. Has Rachel heard it, like, 200 times, though? Because after a while, you start to... Maybe. Yeah? Okay. No, there's I, definitely varies. different competencies in being able to pick out lyrics in music or to be able to recognize faces and stuff like that. There tends to be a spectrum among, like, human abilities for yeah, these totally. types of skills. Anyway, so if you do uh, an fMRI for a place that isn't, like, a doctor looking for stuff, you can sign a thing that says if they have an incidental finding, which is like if they see a golf ball-sized tumor pressing on my, what, fusiform face area, and that's why I don't, I'm bad at faces. Um, so how much brain damage do you got? Turns out, well, they didn't, they, so what they'll do if you sign this thing, they'll send it off to a real doctor who specializes in that, then that doctor will call you. And I never heard from anybody, so I'm apparently I'm brain, drain damage free. Neat. Yeah. You're just naturally bad at braining. <laughs> I, there's that, yeah. <laughs>
All right. I think that's about it as far as I want to touch on like, you know, anytime that any of us think of like, oh, I this is a rationality thing I did yeah. recently. We can bring that up. But to answer that really long running question, I think the general thing is just to, well, I guess if there's an easy way to put it out, we'd have already done that. It's just if you see a way to apply any techniques that you can, even on sample problems that like I wonder about this or like real life problems, those are, you know, the harder versions because there's way more variables in that than there are in any stories. But I don't know. The other thing is like it's not hard, you know, and if you if you fail, usually no one dies. So can I push decision advisor one more time? (laughs) Go for it. Yeah, um, it's a guided path decision advisor. And we'll put a link in there. Um, I made a lot of decisions recently just based off of this um, kind of multiple choice uh, web-based questionnaire that actually kind of calibrates your confidence of how uh, how likely do you think these things will happen? How important is this to you? And it like will compare all your decisions and come up with a, this is what you, like, you actually feel about this. And it's kind of cool because you can put decisions in that you thought you felt really confidently about one way and you, it comes out with the opposite and you're like, oh, wow. Huh. I did that too with trying to decide whether I wanted to pursue a library master's or go to a coding boot camp or like I had a bunch of other things and it was just like, hey, go to the boot camp. And I was like, really? <laughs> you know what? That makes so much sense. And I looked back at all the like, oh yeah, like you could trace the decision all the way back to the root and realize how like valuable are these things to you versus like, how hard is this thing going to be versus, you know, what do you think the outcome is going to be worth? Well, that's nice. So it actually shows you the decision tree that led to where you're at rather than like, just accepting the answer like a BuzzFeed, which Game of Thrones character character yeah, are no, you? Yeah, it's, no, it's a bit more, uh, <laughs> it's no, that, definitely more complex than that. It's got graphs. That sounds awesome. All right, I've never I've never used this. I should definitely look into that. Yeah, and the team that's working on it is really cool. They keep coming out with all different kinds of tools. I actually was in like a web chat with one of the developers, giving them like suggestions and feedback on some of the stuff. So they're really interested in like hearing about, hey, what like cool brain tools do you want to see us make? So what funds this? Did you pay for it? or No, I didn't pay for it. I don't know. Um, Angel investors still, I guess. I guess? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. That's worth looking into. Philanthropy. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm surprised how many things are funded on nothing right now. Just like, hey, it's got the word web in it. Here's money. Yeah, it's well, kind of the way of the future, right? Investors like, can throw money at like 40 things. And then if one of them actually hits the jackpot, then they like, yay. And then the other things got some money and then they didn't do well. And it's like, oh, well, whatever. Yeah. It's nothing to that investor. I'd be but. such a non-asshole Shark Tank style investor if I had $50 million. Because I mean, what's $200,000 to you? I mean, it's, we, we can do the math. It's exactly whatever. But it's You say that, but throw that $200,000 at bad bets long enough and you don't have the $50 million anymore. No, but I could, I could throw it at five that I was reasonably confident in. And then I'm only, oh no, $49 million. And then I, I could make, make some people's lives awesome. I could make a bunch of money. That'd be really cool. Yeah. I also like the show Shark Tank. Um, what was I going to say about the decision tree thing? Oh, a lot of, like a lot of stuff is free. You know, most podcasts, right? Um, especially most of the content that most podcasts make. But I mean, most podcasts um, are basically like a gift to the listening community, right? Right. But I mean, even, even most apps, um, I guess maybe not most, but most apps on anybody's phone. Um, they're free with quotation marks. Exactly. Yeah. They've got ads in them. They've got ads and then they've got, um, you know, paid versions that are leveled up versions or whatever. But if they're awesome enough, like Apollo for iOS, I'll throw him a buck every couple months just because it's awesome. Yeah. I like to throw a few bucks at Pokemon Go every so often because it's I've gotten a lot of like play hours out of this game and it's free. And it's like, I'll just buy some Pokeballs, whatever. Like I kind of want to give back to this development team. I've been playing this game longer than a you lot of people. You realize they're not hurting games. for money. Yeah. And you're the first person I've ever heard who said that. 
No, but I like to, I don't, I don't care no if somebody judgment. is making a lot of money off of something or not, but it's like, you know, if, if I'm getting a lot of value out of this thing, I'll give them some money. No, that's fair. That's nice of you. I was playing some free game that I think is just one one developer, and it's just some little kind of like, you know, clan beat-up thing. It's not Clash of Clans. It's, it's like a little turn-based game, mm-hmm. and, you know, you get the full game, but there's unlockable uh, other t- tribes to play as, mm-hmm. so I like bought one of those just to, like, hey, this is fun. I spent 10 hours doing this. Here's a buck. Um Pokemon Go, I played for like the first year. The thing is, when it launched, it was such garbage. <laughs> if they'd hold on to it for like six more months and actually like... No, that's how you have to develop. To it. It's not. You can... Like a lot of this... I've, I, I've made web games. Uh, that's fair. And, and maybe I'm being know, too harsh, but games. I just know that like a lot of the stuff was, you know, th- it was still like in version zero point something because it was still like technically in beta for like a year. Well, that's part of how you get your data on what people want and like you know what the bugs are and so forth and so on. I mean, you you can kind of do like a QA team for a while, but no, that's fair. You make you make a compelling point that maybe I'm being too harsh on them. But I did just buy what two bucks worth of stuff last month, and that's the first money I've ever spent on it. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying I've like thrown a lot of money at them. I'm saying every so often I will throw them a few bucks. That's nice. <laughs> Which again is partially just because I have made mobile games. I've also waitressed, so like when I go out to a restaurant, I will give people like a twenty to twenty-five percent tip because I'm like, yeah, I've been there, buddy. <laughs> I basically do not play free games because they're always like trying to suck money out of you with these. It's so annoying to me that it's the game is a vehicle for trying to sell you things as mm. opposed to being an actual game. Yeah, I'm like I would like to pay you money for your game. Please give me an actual game. And even even AAA games are doing that shit now. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like the first game I got hosed on really hard was Destiny a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And that game, you know, it came out. The campaign was like 13 hours. I beat it in two days. I was pretty bummed. And then the multiplayer is just nonstop grind. And then they did like raids where you could farm for like better gear. So you could level up a little bit and fight more like stronger other real people. Mm-hmm. And then they had, I think, 60 bucks worth of DLCs for that game. And then I think another thirty dollar like expansion that wasn't included. This game ended up being like one hundred fifty bucks. And then games like uh, God of War. I don't think there's even there's not even DLC for God of War. And that game was outstanding. Yeah. It's interesting that yeah a lot of them. I don't know like free games. They're also like never really worth the fun. Yeah. Like I play Clash of Clans and Pokemon Go and a couple like word games. Those are fine because whatever. Yeah, and I look at the ad and I click the X. Those aren't a big deal. But yeah, Clash of Clans has this. It's that Farmville mechanic from like early Facebook where. You've only got a certain number of builders, and they something takes X hours to build, and then eventually X weeks, and so you can buy, you can spend real money to buy another builder, and then you can buy more gems to rush your builds, and it's just like yeah. So the reason I quit the game design industry was because over a period of six years, I watched the industry turn into turned from let's make a cool game with good art that and good mechanics that people will enjoy to. Let's make people addicted to this game, kind of monetize this kind of slot machine mentality, and then just like release microtransactions. And unfortunately, that business model works. It does, and it's the only way to make money. Because if you have a, if you build this awesome game and be like, hey, it's four bucks. Is that too much to ask? Everyone says, fuck you. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. way too much to ask. There was actually everyone great... pirates stuff too. Can you pirate stuff on phones? Yeah. Easily. Oh, well. I like the independent game community scene where I mean it's. The games aren't necessarily as high quality in terms of like graphics and other things, but it's like just a guy or a team of a few people working on the game and, you know, they get the money from it and it, it actually feels like a real game again. Usually, Undertale was just one yeah. guy and that was amazing. There's some success stories, but usually the people that make these indie games, it's a labor of love and they don't make any money off it and sometimes yeah. it ruins their lives. So like, I like to say like, I also like the indie game community, but like I... 
think that the people who do it are heroes. Yeah. Basically, you have to do it as a labor of love and expect you're never going to get anything out of it. That's basically everything nowadays, if you aren't yeah. working for the man. It's like, you know, you kind of do it because you love it, and you hope maybe someday someone will pay some attention or, or give you some money. The way I look at it, like, I get a lot of things for free off the internet, too, like podcasts and stuff, right? Fan but fiction. I don't... The what? And, and fan fiction. Fan fiction, right? Lots of things. But I feel like since I'm helping to put something back into the pot with the podcasts I do, that it kind of evens out, right? So if everyone is does some work to to add to the pool, then it's not it's not I don't consider them like morally bad for put drawing from it as well. Creative fields are a mess right now. Um, <laughs> oh God, that's an understatement. Yeah, like I, I you know hate to give any credit to the church, but like you used to be able to get a bunch of money thrown at you from wealthy donors who wanted you to like you know make icons religious iconography or whatever or like portraits of my wealthy family and then you had a career in the arts and now like we have patreon which is kind of a poor substitute and uh so you can go into the arts and you can either kind of just do marketing i'm not sure if it's a poor substitute i mean um, having a patron back in the day wasn't that great a thing either because i mean sure it was great that you got to live and and get paid money for doing your art but you had a market of one, and like, if he was like, "I want all the art to be big titted ladies with blonde hair," that was your job, you know. <laughs> or uh, you know, draw me the the uh, the Madonna carrying Jesus's body over and over again. Then, at least with Patreon, you have a little bit more freedom. I guess so. Um, there's a little bit of give and take there, where like I feel like if you apprenticed with an artist back in the day, kind of like if you apprenticed with any craftsperson, like it was more or less guaranteed you would have work. Whereas nowadays you can kind of make free YouTube videos forever. Or you could like make fan art and fan fiction. And it's like yeah. a very small number of people actually make it in the industry Yeah, or Most make enough money starving. off of Patreon and coffee to be able to support themselves. You can't really support yourself in the arts unless you again, work for the man, like you say, or, or you hit it big. You yeah. get really lucky. I'm one of the lucky people. Yeah. Um, that's why I'm looking forward to UBI because I think that people get a lot of value out of the stuff people make for free. And I would love to see those people be able to make a basic income and keep making the cool free stuff. There's so many, like we were talking about earlier, fanfic artists and fan or fan artists and fan fiction writers who create like awesome content for two or three years and then disappear. Well, I think Wildbow, the author of Worm and all the Parahumans and Pact and Twig, he just got in the last couple of years, like to a point where he had sustainable income. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. he was working as a handyman, Doing commuting by train, writing his books on the train. He's um, still publishing two chapters a week. And like, he's so prolific, and yeah. his work is such high quality. It really is. It's uh, it's outstanding. And so. And it's not like uh, he's making a lot of money. He's making like subsistence, like you said. Maybe, maybe yeah. he's making more now. I really hope he is. I hope he's making a bit more. I I'd think he's almost at the median American income right now, so okay. a decent amount. And he lives Yay. in the boonies in Canada, so he's yeah. probably doing great. Cool. But, well, doing good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know how much money he needs. He seems like he just likes to write. Right. It seems like he likes and, like, needs to not just to live but to i think I mean, he I can't, explicitly I said that like i need to write i was in college and i realized i just need to write that makes sense <laughs> i can't do anything else <laughs> it's like man i wish i felt that way about something so i got a fun segue speaking of the church and how having patreon supporters is better than having a patron we can see how many patreon supporters we lose by diving into tonight's topic oh okay yeah if you guys are ready to move on i don't think we'd lose any from this topic. I, I don't think so either but yeah. okay like, our patrons are pretty much on board with this, as far as I can tell. Atheism! Yeah! It's the best! Well, alright, so... It was the best. Still the best. <laughs> alright, this is, this is interesting. We're already, <laughs> we're already confused and disagreeing, I think. No, I'm talking uh, about the... Go ahead, Scott. Oh, no, you're, no, you're good. Um, so, I think in general, this topic gets so little coverage in the rationality community, because, like, nobody cares. 
Right. I think we've touched just, on that. It was so obvious, you know? Well, and that's that's what they all say. And they all, you know... And now we have rationalist Catholics and rationalist Mormons and stuff. And Do we like, have Wait popular ones? What? I don't know about that? now. I think they've been around. Hmm. Oh, well... Well, I mean, yeah. By now, I mean, yeah. Not I've, like recently, but... I've never heard of them. But oh, I'm yeah. sure... I mean, they, just like we've always had religious scientists, you know? It's like you you have somebody who believes the earth is 10,000 years old and then puts on a lab coat and goes to work on Monday morning right. and does s- publishable science it's hard to say that like they, they that they have a scientific orientation in their head on like how to approach real problems right mm-hmm. um so anyway i guess i wanted to mention like why nobody talked about atheism and rationality for the most part maybe they do now i i most of my community following is mostly like the sequences and slate star codex posts i don't do a lot of like the, f- the current forums and that sort of stuff. So maybe mm-hmm. there's more discussion that I'm aware of, but my impression was just that like, this was a problem that was like uninteresting and easy. Yeah. And so it's like, there's, we don't get a lot of like traction, just rehearsing how cool we are for solving this. I mean, that was basically the, the sentiment for a long time. And you know, then we got a, not like a huge amount or anything, but a more than zero amount of really dedicated rationalists that were also religious. And, uh, then it became something people talk about every now and then. Is the it just is it just like with scientists where they like pretend it's scientific or they just don't talk about it? They say it's separate from science or do you get like rationalists who say, no, it's really rational. God doesn't want you to masturbate. Or do they say like, no, it's I, I do rationality Monday through Friday to five and then I do religion for the rest of my I've hours. I've seen at least one, um, I don't know if you would call it an apologetic or what, but like a strong... I don't consider the argument strong personally, but the person obviously does consider it a strong argument for why rationalism and their religion is compatible. Hmm. Yeah. I'd be interested if you dig it up. Send I, it away. I have it remembered. I wanted to do an episode on it sometime soon. Oh, nice. Yeah. I mean, right. not right now because now we're on something else. Yeah. But no, that yeah. sounds interesting, man. We can it's dive into be. it. Yeah, yeah, the vague introduction to that. I wanted to call it cyber Christianity. <laughs> uh, yeah. I specifically wanted to bring up the Slate Star Codex article, which was how did new atheism fail so miserably? Before we dive into that, I had one like quick Go I don't know, thing. So atheism as like what it is, I've always had like kind of two definitions. Um, there's like the strong version of like, I don't, or I believe God doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And then there's like the weak version of like, I don't believe God exists. Two very similar sounding statements, but one is like a positive assertion. One is like a lack of like being convinced. Mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say like from my own mind i see them both as technically true like to the extent that like rationalists understand what it means to say i believe something right that is to say i assign a very low probability to it and i would bet against it like i'm currently betting against it with my mortal soul <laughs> um, <laughs> well, i mean I, i'm sunny for chronics if i have one it's going to go in the tank with me i hope so like it's the kind of thing that if uh, i don't know i i to somebody i've had conversations it's been a long time since i've had like a religious like debate with somebody like i don't know at least over five years probably in real life mm-hmm. like i actually so had a minor religious debate with someone less than a year ago that's refreshing isn't it yeah it's like oh let me dust off the old boxing gloves oh they're, <laughs> right? s- they're still they're still fit yeah um i hate doing religious debates with people because it always makes both of us sad oh it depends on the person yeah certainly i haven't had a bad natured one in over a decade like the good natured ones are you know people who you know approaching the rationalists community mindset where like no i just think this is true and i'm like well i, I don't and here's why and they're like no i get it oh that's cool but you know as long as it's a little friendly you want to just hash it out for a bit and you know we'll have fun and have a drink or something it's never been like geez you're a fucking idiot man mine was with two other guys and me and the one other guy like got into it pretty decently there was a little bit of like exasperation on both sides but we were having a fun time right the third guy only poked his head in on occasion but by the end of it he was devastated 
Aww. he was like i feel so bad for your immortal soul oh my god you don't deserve to go to hell and i was like dude i'm so sorry for you that's, <laughs> that's, my yeah, response, that's the kind of thing that makes me sad well, my, I, my response to that is always like i feel bad for yours because you're not a muslim <laughs> or because you're not a mormon yeah, yeah. Or, you, you don't know. have cryonics yeah well or, or that but like well that's the that's my real answer yeah. right mm-hmm. like some but my cheeky answer is like you know the the god of the new testament or of the old testament and the new whatever is sort of a vindictive prick and if it's it's not like just have faith and you get in it's like it's my way or the highway here's the long list of rules i'm very clear i'm vaguely clear about it and uh you're gonna burn in hell forever if you don't do what i say mm-hmm. there's there's not as far as you know like the the mutterings of the new pope aside i don't think there's a lot of like biblical su- support for the idea of like we just care about that you have a sense of you know um good and bad good good and bad or or uh, gratitude towards the universe or something uh-huh. and that's enough right it's oh uh, i have so much gratitude towards the universe not yeah. that i think the universe is like sentient or anything but it's like wow it's really cool that i exist yeah mm-hmm. no dan dennett talks about that a lot and, and yeah i think we'll talk about that yeah we're gonna dive into the new atheists um if you want if you guys are ready sure i didn't mean to keep steering here i'm just kind of on a roll i'm kind of hyped up so yeah, yeah. it's good times yeah it's the hot cocoa it's actually probably the epidural I had like eight hours oh. ago. So. <laughs> nice. The steroids got me all jazzed. Yeah. Should be a fun episode then. I'm moderating pretty well, so we'll do all right. I think we've been doing good. Good. If my if my speech goes too fast, let me know. <laughs> we'll just slow you down in post. <laughs> if only it was that easy. I know. So you had a thing you were bringing up. Yeah. Pull up the title again. Um, yeah. The title of this Slate Star Coast Codex, I can't talk either, uh, post was, How Did New Atheism Fail So Miserably? And uh, I was thinking about it recently because I recently reread uh, The God Delusion, which I remember really enjoying when I first read it. And I kind of came back to it because I was like, I remember the arguments in this being so good. And I kind of reread it and I was like, these are still good arguments, but like, I don't know, like, what whatever happened to all of this? And I remembered this article too, and I went back and reread it and I kind of like just started getting really upset. <laughs> so what is the central thrust of the article? Kind of like, as you can, you know, imagine from the title, New Atheism was a thing. It was in the media um the four horsemen were writing books and it seemed like at the time like i was in college and i was really idealistic and i was like yeah you know science is like improving the world and these new atheists are out in public and this is just going to be like the way of the future uh and then like it just disappeared in the past like what five years i mean i think he has a very good explanation for that uh which we can which i agree with and which we can go into but i uh I never thought that. Like, I mean, I was, <laughs> I was an atheist before it was cool, <laughs> but uh, that's hipster. Yeah, seriously, no. But I mean, like, before any of the new atheism thing broke, it was, it was, it was already brewing online for years before that, right? And uh, I was part of that whole scene. I listened to uh, Jeff D on the nonprofits, which later became the atheist community of Austin, and that was a cool scene. I mean, there was. There was a whole thing. I listened to the infidel guy. Man, Reggie, that takes me back. <laughs> this was before they had like Reddit and other places to g- gather, so everyone had their own like website and forums that you would go onto and Those argue with Christians. Kind of the days. Yeah, but uh, but the thing is, like, I never really had any delusions that the mass of the world would come over to atheism in my lifetime. In in my lifetime, meaning in the next, you know. 60 years or something i i obviously hope to have a very long lifetime (laughs) but colloquially using that term i was like yeah you know all i'm trying to do is gain some acceptance for my tribe so that we can actually hold office openly and not be spat upon and not be the most hated minority in the country you know 
that's what I'm going for. That's what I want. And I think we won that pretty damn hard. And all the people who were like, yeah, atheism's going to take over. We're going to be the new Christianity and the whole country's going to get rational. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Have you met the average human? That's that's never going to happen. All I want is some semblance of like respect and rights. It's interesting. I remember... Let me adopt a kid, you know? Was that a thing? I'm sure it was. Oh, yeah. Wow. It, it was a big thing. It was, it was oh, that, was a a, dumb, that was a dumb question. It's I as bad as, trying, as letting a homosexual adopt a kid, you know? They're going to pervert them and turn them into their godless, evil ways. Yeah, that seems like so long ago. Child. But <laughs> right. It's That seems like so long ago, but every year in Trump years feels like 10 years. <laughs> right. So, like, this feels like 30 years ago, but I it was know. like 10. Yeah. I remember during the Bush era, like, you know, there that was like the, um, what was the quote? that the secretary or the press secretary put out that was like the reality-based community or something, mm-hmm. which is kind of a weird, yeah, we're, I think we're all kind of reality-based community people um, as opposed to your fantasy-based community. <laughs> but yeah, it, it was the uh, the push of, like you said, you know, I remember this was like all the, the surveys and stuff that were in all these new atheist books of, you know, look, 2% or what was it? 10% of people said they'd vote for an atheist or something. It was like, this was like in 2003 and it was like, like, three times uh, less than the number of people who would say they vote for a Muslim president. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that voting for a Muslim president is a bad idea, but across the average American, you know, the average, uh, whatever, post 9-11 American, they were like, I'd rather have a Muslim than an, in the White House than, than an atheist. Yeah. And we've crossed that line recently in the last two years. We're finally less unpopular than Muslims. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, has Muslim popularity gone here down or is done? <laughs> has Muslim popularity gone down to meet us, or did we just go up with go above where they were at? I, uh, I haven't think checked it was the numbers. Both. Eh, that's a drag. I'd like the numbers just to keep going up for right. everybody, but whatever. As far as like the God delusion, that was the first one I read, and I I think I've I went over my like religious background of the show where uh, way back in the day. But the real short version is is that I sort of believed tacitly, like you kind of believe everything your parents tell you. I used it. I used the analogy of like believing that Japan existed. Right. Like, I'd never been there. I'd seen it on TV. People told me it was real. It's in books. Yeah, exactly. And so that was sort of my, my take on on, the, on religious claims. And it just turned out, like, in my early and mid-teens, they sort of fell apart under scrutiny. Actually catalyzed by George Carlin. He was, like, the first public person I saw who was, like, making fun of religion. And I was like, I thought just everybody bought into this. Turns out they don't. Mm. Um, the God Delusion was – I haven't read it, you know, since it was relatively new. I imagine it wouldn't be as much fun. I think – it's interesting too, and I, I want to caveat. I've mentioned this before, but Dawkins in that book is like at his most grumpy, <laughs> which, which still is not very grumpy. No, he's still nice. I mean, and his his most grumpy, I think, is his Twitter more recently. That's fair. I should I should mention his grumpiest book. Twitter uh, destroys <laughs> everybody's brain. Yeah. I think that's fair. Um, that's that Sam Harris just had a uh, the CEO of Twitter on his podcast, and they they talk about that a little bit. And then he just had Stephen Fry on earlier this week or mm. last week. I listened to most of that one, but it was so depressing I had to stop. It was pretty depressing. Stephen mm. Fry is a really jovial dude, and he it was a pretty pretty bummer episode. But um, you mentioned the Four Horsemen. They had this two hour conversation that they had on YouTube that's still out there for free. Um, but they're releasing, I think, the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Science and Reason, and is it Center for Inquiry? Are like now one big whatever organization oh we should quickly interject for anyone who doesn't know the four horsemen of new atheism were i was going to get there oh okay sorry uh, no no that's totally fine i was going to mention that there's a transcript of this uh two-hour conversation that's coming out in book form okay um yeah but the four horsemen our docs as our our docs R- R- richard dawkins <laughs> nice yeah richard dawkins daniel dennett sam harris and christopher hitchens they were the first four really big um people that 
came out and sort of led the movement after 9-11. Yeah. They were the really, like, prominent ones. There were a bunch of other atheists, and actually a bunch of people kind of brought up how annoying it was that people only wanted to focus on these, like, old white intellectuals when there were a bunch of queer people and people of color and so forth and so on blogging about this stuff. But anyway. Harris wasn't even old yet. Yeah, he was like Well, yeah, he was the young. He was the baby of the group. (laughs) (laughs) He was. But the, the... yeah, I mean, th- certainly it's been a conversation for a while. I think what set them apart is they all had best-selling books in the subject. And so I think I get where the, the Slate Star Codex talk- post talks about how the, the movement failed, but it did accomplish a lot of stuff. And like, it's not like these people made a lot of noise and then everyone hated them and they shut up forever. Like They made a lot of noise, ma- wrote books, made a fortune on the subject, or whatever, made real money on the subject. Mm-hmm. And they... And helped change the culture a little bit. Yeah. I mean, nowadays, yeah. everyone knows someone who's an atheist. Do they? Maybe. I think so. Even, like, there's even people in the Deep South that, like, will be on YouTube, and they're like, I'm all about my guns and my beer, but, you know, I'm not necessarily into this church thing, and that's all right. Hmm. And I'm like, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and, and you know, they, they all talk about that whenever they, whenever the, you know, their books come up or something, that they, they still get people writing in being like, hey, I just came across the end of faith. I live in Pakistan. This just changed my life. Hmm. Um so it, it, these these the content still reaches people, and the um, what I like about their approaches is that they they all really had different ways of analyzing this whole thing. Um, Richard Dawkins came at it from a, the point of view of a disgruntled scientist who couldn't believe after like sixty years he still had to argue that evolution was real. Yeah, specifically an evolutionary biologist. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so his his thing was just like wait, you guys don't believe it because of your religion? Well, that's fucking dumb, right? <laughs> wait, you don't think so? Okay, well, geez, fine. So his the God delusion is him just, like, grumpily arguing, like, making... And again, it's it's a pretty... He's a light, cheerful person for the most part. The book is actually very poetic. It, it is. A lot of that, like... Th- what I really liked about Dawkins back in the day was that he used to write in this kind of, uh, like, almost a poetic language where even in The God Delusion... Uh, he kind of would kind of wax poetic about evolution and science. And like, there were just these great quotes that you could pull from it that made you feel kind of hopeful and optimistic about the world. Yeah. Well, according to Stephen, who's read some of his other books, like all his books are like that, right? Yeah. yeah the grand des- or not the grand design. That's Stephen Hawking. Uh, the, the greatest show on earth. Or greatest, greatest show on earth. On earth but Unweaving the Rainbow is one I always plug. Yeah. yeah. So the last chapter, I think, of The God Delusion is the, what it's called, something with the word Burke is in the title, but he imagines, he's trying to just sell like, He's trying to challenge the position that, like, oh, the scientific worldview is bleak and annoying, and really only the religious view offers anything worth, you know, being happy about and being inspired by. And he was like, check this out. And he uses this metaphor of, like, a burqa with, like, a one-inch slit that, you know, that's all you can see the world in. And that, so he's like, all right, cool. Well, just imagine, like, that's the band of visible light, that one inch. The actual um, perceptible light waves go up for miles and go down miles past what you can see the world is so much grander than you're just aware of through through the little lens that you have it, it, so that was that that is like i think i said that's the last chapter and that's kind of signing off on like to me the more happier note of the book from what i remember yeah. it's been like 10 years it ended up being kind of an unfortunate metaphor because a lot of what he and the other horsemen got slammed for was homophobia or um islamophobia, not islamophobia. i can't like put words into concepts tonight phobia phobia what is islamophobia by the way just hating muslims so do they hate Muslims or do they hate Islam? No, I think they just hate religion, but the fact that they tended to specifically rail on Islam got them a lot of hate from the left. Yeah, I noticed that. And I, and, I knew, and I knew the distinction before I asked, but I just think it's an important one because I do think that hating hating or being fearful of, which is, I think, what phobia is, is, is implying. That's, what but phobia, like, that's the definition. Yeah, that's what it means, but in common parlance, things like Islamophobia and homophobia just mean 
like dislike bigoted against yeah yeah but i think being bigoted against set of ideas is different than being big bigoted against people i realize in practice that's really hard to, to space out and if you tell somebody it's it, it's just like religious person saying i don't like i don't like what you do but i like you right you know if you're gay or something and again many many religious people don't have a problem with gay people it's just it's uh the bible's pretty clear on where you should stand on gay people so anyone who's read it and takes it to heart doesn't by kind of de facto doesn't like gay people otherwise they'll go to hell so and i realized that biblical scholarship is a lot like comic book scholarship where you can say well if you read between the lines here really it means this or even if you read this verse directly it happens to contradict all the other verses yeah all the other verses right. um yeah there's a, a this was back in the days when i was you know having fun arguing there was like a a paraphrased Bible that just highlighted the crazy shit. There's all kinds of online interactive things that just show contradictions, mm -hmm. like direct ones. And they have like a line with a chapter and verse, and then they have like a line at you know later on where it says the exact opposite. Yeah. Oh man, I'm just reminded of I, I was like a dick when I was first coming out as an atheist, and I did this thing where I pulled a bunch of uh, facts from the Bible about Easter that were all contradictory, and I was mm -hmm. like, "Hey, family, the do Easter you want to do a quiz?" Yeah, okay, you remember the Easter challenge? I yeah. did that to my family. My sister cried. I don't. Why would she <laughs> cry? Because like she thought that I was actually like coming back to the faith, and then like I was like, "Ha ha, I played a joke on you." Oh, They're all no. correct. What's the Easter challenge? Uh, you cannot um, make a cohesive narrative out of the four uh, accounts of Jesus' resurrection in the four gospel books. Yeah, so or you're his like, ancestry. You can go to a well, religious person yeah. and be like, which one of these is the correct biblical interpretation of Easter? And they're all correct. Yeah, I don't know how you square that circle. I, that's part of why I'm not religious. And that, that's actually... That it's sounds a metaphor, tongue -in -cheek. Stephen. Well, it, but that sounds tongue-in-cheek, But well, except it's not because he's supposed to have been real. And so, like, <laughs> right. you know, It's a metaphor the, except when we want it to be real, Stephen. The um the apostles disagree on like who what his lineage was and his his ancestry yeah. and it's like it's it's either this or this right the lineage um, thing I don't even think is that big a deal because you know whatever lineages they get mixed up but yeah not but they not can't both but the point is they can't both be true right but not having a cohesive story of the most important <laughs> event of your religion is uh it's a bit embarrassing in my opinion yeah it's it's so, literally what your religion is founded on this guy came back to life. And, and like I said, that's why that's why I'm not religious because I can't make myself just be like, well, I'll just live with that that what do you call it? that disharmony in your brain, um, cognitive dissonance. Mm. So it, and that sounds tongue in cheek, but it's not. Like if I if I notice that like I believe contradictory things, it grinds at me until I drop one. Well, it it turns out that most people just don't care. Exactly. And I mean, but that I'm was one of the people who does, and so I can't. When I was a new atheist and like had come like out of Jehovah's Je the Jehovah's Witness faith, I was like, I want to just print up all these pamphlets and leave it on everyone's dashboard at uh, you know in front of the kingdom hall because they call the churches kingdom halls um and it's like i was so full of like vim and de everyone will see what a lie this is and they will all be like how could you have lied to us about this and i never actually did it and now i i realized they would have looked at it and been like uh and thrown it away and not given it two thoughts yeah the answer i always got as a kid was like well that's where faith comes in Okay. And so Richard Dawkins puts it poignant, poignantly is that faith is a license people give themselves to believe something when reasons fail. And for those of us in the reality-based community, we like reasons for beliefs. Yes. And so do, so do religious people on almost everything. They just have separate areas where they apply it indiscriminately. Or, well, the thing are... is, their reasons for belief is this is what my community says they believe. And this is what I need to say in order to get the benefits of being in this community. Or they really believe they have a soul or something. Yeah. Some of them mm. actually believe that part. And not even that. Um, some people are emotional thinkers as opposed to rational thinkers. Uh, mm. There's, I don't know, like how, you know, in, inborn this is. and But, like, it, it does seem like there's there's genuinely kind of two classes of people. It's, yeah. And, and, and so, like, I, I believe in this thing that makes me feel good and that makes me feel like 
I am going to live forever and my family members are going to live forever and be rewarded for all the suffering that we're having and telling somebody they're like, nah, is actually really like upsetting to them to the point where they will actually lean into that cognitive dissonance and like, no, actually, like this makes me feel terrible. I'm going to have a panic attack. You know what? Nope. Rejecting that. Or I vice- believe my belief. Yeah, or, or they, they lean the other way and they just like, well, this makes me happy to believe this. And yeah. That, and so these are probably the same people that say you're not listening to me when you're clearly listening to them and just not agreeing with them. <laughs> well, that, that's cause also because English is like really a non-specific language. Yeah, but I mean, I've, I've talked with people who literally thought I just needed to listen to them better. And I'm like, no, I'm listening to you. But what they I mean hear is what not listening. Saying. They mean like you're not you're being not empathetic me. to me enough. Yeah, yeah I I know. No, yeah, it's, yeah. Just, it's, it's, it's infuriating. It's yeah. like, no, I can repeat back what you said right. better than you put it. Right. And uh, so I, I tell you why I disagree. And they're like, no, you're not listening to me. <laughs> I, I got something of value from, from all the four, f- the four horsemen back in the day. And I haven't revisited any of their stuff lately. But what's fun is that they all came from different disciplines. And they brought something new to the table, which is also, again, I got into these books in like late high school. And it was like the first time that I saw that, oh, depending on like what your specialty is in real life, you'll approach whatever issue this way. And it was always fun to see Dawkins bring it back to evolution or something and mm-hmm. Dennett bring it back to um, kind of like um, philosophy. philosophy and kind of cognitive psychology. Mm-hmm. And then Harris would kind of lean more on just like philosophy and just hard logic. And then uh, Hitchens had it where it was just, for him it was just, you know, he, I think Richard Dawkins said he seems to have read absolutely everything. Um, he'd, he'd bring it back to some reference of some book, and he would he had this fire where he could just be. He had sounded rage. Speaking God, of Stephen H Fry, was my favorite. He was he was great to watch. Yeah. Speaking of Stephen Fry, there was a great Intelligence Squared debate with Stephen Fry and Hitch on one side, and uh, like I two deacons. It. Or, yeah, mm-hmm. it was great. And you know, Hitch could get up there, and he'd be like, "You're going to tell me that my friend, you know, pointing or touching Stephen Fry, is is an abomination who's going to burn in hell because of what he is." Fuck you. I don't think he said fuck you, but the rest was the direct quote. Mm. But he, but he he would have this this fire, but they could go out for a drink afterward. Like he was never, I think, hating people. He just had this kind of energy to him. But speaking of it, always making you know, well, this makes me happy. Harris had this memorable what parable, I guess, of like, oh yeah, every every weekend my family and I go out in the backyard and dig for a uh, diamond. We we believe that there's one the size of a refrigerator back there somewhere. Um, <laughs> Well, of course, there's no good reason to believe it, but it makes us happy. That's a good reason. Mm-hmm. And it gives us hope. You know, if we find this thing, we'll be rich forever. Brings so. us together as a family. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so it's like uh, he, he's mocking all of like, the same reasons people go to church or whatever it is. Yeah. But he was saying, like, this isn't a sufficient reason. Like, it makes me happy. It doesn't make that's the thing is, like, if you don't care about, you know, analyzing your beliefs that way. That, and that maybe that's the other reason rationalists spend so little time talking about this, because we're not engaging with people like that for the most part. We're well past the point where we think something makes me happy, therefore it's true. Mm-hmm. That's not even a thing that occurs anymore for me. And yeah. I'm assuming it's the case for a lot of people. So, yeah. But if you're, if, if you're just not interested, you're not, I don't know, not to say that you're that unexamined, or you're not that introspective, but just that's not a part of your life that you introspect about. You'll be like, look, it makes me happy. That's all I need. And if I think that makes it true, whatever, hand wave. Mm-hmm. So... I just assign so much value to the truth that it's kind of what you're talking about with cognitive dissonance. Like if I, I, I can't lie, I'm like the worst person in the world at like lying about something, even a white lie. It just like kills me. And having like a belief that I think is false, it just, it's like an itch that I have to like go look on Wikipedia and <laughs> mm-hmm. figure out what is true. But like some of those beliefs were actually really sad and, and hard to come to. But a lot of people, you know, um, don't want to do that. And it was really rough. Like, changing your beliefs is really hard. I know Ash can talk to that because, you know, you did come from that Jehovah's Witness background and (laughs) converting to an atheist, I'm sure, was, like, really hard. Yes, yes, it was. (laughs) Yeah, we can't hear your nodding. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) 
Yeah, for me, I, I looked at it. It was fairly easy. My family, I think, you know, my dad, there were different varieties of religious, um, both Christian, some kind. But, like, the fact that I don't know tells you how strict my upbringing was. <laughs> Part of their thing is, like, of my upbringing anyway, is, like, my parents had three kids and I think had the energy for two. And so, like, they, I think they wanted to. I like to joke that my brother and I are, are each half of an accident. Right. Um, yeah, so between the two of us and then my older sister, I think they just didn't have the energy, like, to actually commit to stuff. So, like, at some point, I think it was right when I was, like, an early teenager, and I started asking all these hard questions. It was, like, sixth grade. I learned about how the nice sixth grade version about Christo- Christopher Columbus came over and, like, Christianized the Indians. Mm. <laughs> and, yeah, there's a, obviously a not pg version of that did Um, all the ones before he came go to hell that was my question and turns out that that's a really confusing question for religious people (laughs) um because it says you have to you have to accept jesus into your heart to go but all the unbaptized babies but but if you didn't know yeah all the unbaptized babies yeah all the people like in every other country that wasn't christian throughout all of human history yeah what about the proto-humans like what about like neanderthals well it depends on when when god leaned in and injected the soul right Oh, like even proto humans. Your of... parents don't. Your parents don't have souls, but you do. Is how this <laughs> is how this happened. You just don't tell the kid. Yeah, or they have it with Adam and Eve, depending on how strict you are, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that was my my I think my first brush with like the challenge of the institution, and so they're like, oh, we're gonna read the Bible. Like we'll read a verse a night, and it went on for like three days. So um, I think uh. they it doesn't take long to get into it before you get to really weird shit. Yeah, reading did, what, the did Bible. Did you start at Genesis one? Yeah. Holy shit, your parents had no idea what they were doing, did they? My dad had read it cover to cover before. I don't think my mom had. Really? And he wanted you to read it sequentially? They were going to read it to us. I think that he, whatever, and I, again, Like, if I was trying to indoctrinate a kid, I would cut out large chunks. That's what they do in church. Yeah, Um, exactly. Yeah, so to be clear, my my memory of my childhood is vague, but I'm pretty sure that's how we did it. Okay. Again, three days from 20 years ago So he literally just read it front to back to you. No, no, no. I think okay. he read he read it front to back himself at some point in his life. All right. um, I'm told. Right. It's rough. There's like all oh, the yeah. begats. <laughs> There's like Ecclesiastes, which is just an old man complaining about things. Pages There's and a pages. Song of Solomon, which is like completely unrelated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just pages and pages describing how to build altars for animal sacrifices. Oh, there's so much mm-hmm. animal sacrifice, especially mm-hmm. in the Old Testament. So much incest, so much foreskins. <laughs> right. there, there's whole talks of like raiding villages and coming back with piles of foreskins. Yeah. Like it. Reading the Bible cover to cover was how I officially became an atheist. That's actually a running joke too in the atheist community. Yeah. If you want somebody to be an atheist, just have them read the whole Bible. Yeah. Um, I, I was trying to think of, I guess, the other horseman stuff. But I guess, I guess we're getting pretty far afield from the SSC post. So what, what did New Atheism fail at and why? It failed at keeping up with the left that um, basically runs the, the um, liberal side of our political war because the... After the um, political right invaded Iran, Iraq, was it? No, goddamn. Where did we go into? We went into Iraq, right? Yeah. Okay. And Afghanistan. And Afghanistan, right. Uh, After the political right made it their mission to have wars in the Arab countries, all of a sudden being a Muslim became like the new minority that has to be protected. And the new atheists were like, no, we're still we're still not down with religion. Whereas before, when all the religious people that got beat on were on the reli- on the political right, they were like your southern rednecks, your hillbillies, your televangelists, all the people that the the liberal that the political left hate anyway. They're like, yeah, these new atheists are cool. They're witty. They're beating up on our enemies. We're we're along for this ride. And then as soon as uh, the the Muslim population became, you know, who the right was beating up on, it was sort of an enemy of my enemy kind of thing. And the political left was like, 
no no the the muslims are a protected minority now and you're not allowed to treat them the same way you treat southerners and uh since you are still saying that then uh fuck off and religion or the the atheist community was kind of like an equal opportunity hater where they're like i'm not going to discriminate based on someone's religion whether or not i dislike the religion right the religion yeah. is stupid regardless screw your dumb religion and your dumb you know things that you make women do yeah, yeah. there's um that was one of the hypotheses in the article the yeah. other one was just that it like failed to gain cultural relevance because people found them to be boring and redundant especially in you know the rationality community it seemed like they weren't reaching their what was it political adversaries they I were mean, just kind of like preaching you know the same thing over and over again saying like this obvious thing and being really like in your face about it and everyone was like oh god we know shut up i think they kind of won though because like the newest generation almost everyone on tumblr and reddit is some flavor of not the religion their parents were even if they aren't necessarily atheists they're at least like oh i'm spiritual you know instead of yeah I'm, i don't know about tumblr people are very spiritual on tumblr not necessarily christian right right Wait, that's the thing that you're not christian yeah they're okay. they're you know they're spiritual or they're into crystals or whatever but so, but uh, they're no longer like the televangelist moral majority people. I don't know if the Four Horsemen had to do with that. I think that was a kind of cultural shift that was happening already. And I mean, I've definitely I, experienced a lot of the attitude from family members of like, you don't believe in anything? Yeah. Oh, I would rather you believe in something as opposed to nothing, regardless of what it is. Right. No, <laughs> I mean, I don't like think that they were, obviously that's not what they were shooting for. And, and I don't think they were necessarily directly responsible, but I think they were a contributing factor. It's kind of like, Bostrom and Yudkowsky writing about AI safety like they weren't the only ones making these noises and they weren't the first but they they were large and charismatic yeah. and got a got a, a large audience they and were so they took a lot of shit for charging. it too yeah. yeah and I think you know, they think it's a similar thing with the new atheists that like they weren't making their, their message wasn't wholly original you know some of their arguments might have been like their flavor of original especially like Dennett's un, un, or excuse me Dennett's book Breaking the Spell sounds like it's like breaking the spell of being religious the spell is the taboo of talking about religion scientifically and investigating it. Okay. Yeah. And so his whole thing was like, we should just, this is like a super important thing in the world. You know, 75% of people claim that religion is the most important thing in their lives in the, on the globe. We should be curious, like, how, where did this come from? Where did these impulses come from? Why are we like this? What What are the varieties of religious uh, interpretations? That sort of stuff. Yeah, and, <laughs> I think and Rick that Warren basically called his, has come about to a large extent. Yeah. Like, I, I, I contest the the thesis of that post i don't think that new atheism failed miserably me too i think it achieved some of its goals and you know not all of them it might the, a better title might be why didn't it succeed gloriously because it might not have done that but i think failed miserably sounds like it tried and just caught on fire i don't and think died. the word miserably was in there i it think it is now i'm forgetting the thing that i was quoting but in any case uh the oh yeah no the word miserably is right there yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, <you're good. laughs> no. um yeah there's that and i think I've never had a hard finger on like the pulse of society and their political leanings very well, especially 15 years ago. But I'm pretty sure 15 years ago it was more acceptable to say, as a politician, those are my private religious beliefs and that's why I'm voting this way. Fuck you. Minus the fuck you, whatever. Um, <laughs> fuck you implied. Mm. But now I think there, there's less of that. Now there's a lot more pushback, especially like from like liberal politicians saying, you've got to back that up. You can't just say it's my private conviction that I came to you know, last night reading the Bible and that's why I'm voting this way. Otherwise, we're going to call you out. Is that is my interpretation there wrong? It seems like even politically, they still vote religiously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they have to they have to hand wave and make up some science or like something. It's certainly much less, far less acceptable on the left. I think 
it's probably less acceptable than it used to be on the right, but it's still got some legitimacy on the right to say that. But I think people on the left call them out more now. Yeah. Whereas like it used to be a tacitly supported thing among everybody that, oh, of course, your faith is your faith. I respect that. Oh, you don't want gay people to be, uh, you know, allowed to marry or live. Well, that's your religion. That's fine. <laughs> I understand. You know, I can't challenge your I'm religious I'm not sure belief. very many people went that far even back in the day. Oh, that's good. I mean, uh, yeah, it not not. I mean, death camps was kind yeah. of hyperbole. I don't think death but camps, but I also think like, well, if they get HIV, then that's their problem. Right. Was a that thing that happened. It was. But but like marriage, for example, there's no um, there's no good secular argument right. against gay marriage. And right? there it used to be legitimate to say that you know God said Adam and Eve. Right. And, yeah. And now it's not. So that seems like a win. Yeah. I do think that you're right. I think it probably has more to do with the fact that there were equal opportunity haters. And when it became unfashionable to hate equally, um, <laughs> then it was like, oh, you guys are, are making... Because the thing is, and that's the, that's the sort of the downside, and there's still so, sort of the carryover of that with, like, Sam Harris especially, because he's the only one I still... Like, if Dawkins had a podcast, I'd listen to it, but I'm not going to get on Twitter to follow him. Mm, good choice. <laughs> right. But, you know, even now, Harris, if he... He doesn't talk about religion all that much. It's so, so sort of his springboard onto being popular, but now it's like... I can't remember. He had one religious episode maybe in the last year on his podcast. And that was actually really fun. Maybe this was a couple years ago. It was with, um, I forget her name. She was Fred Phelps' daughter. So that was kind of interesting. He was the hmm. Westboro Baptist Church leader. Mm-hmm. And just what it was like growing up with him. And now she's uh, not now she's not religious and that sort of stuff. For those unfamiliar, Westboro Baptist Church were the God Hates Fags picketing funerals people. Yeah, they're, they were a drag. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess they still do do <laughs> that, don't they? Or continue to be a drag. But I think that they're actually like a group that it's acceptable for everyone to hate. Yeah. yeah, there was a joke about Kyle Kinane that you have like a crowd of like homosexual protesters and and the Hell's Angels saying "fuck you guys." It's <laughs> like that's that's quite a villain, right? Right. Um, that's that's a good uh, Fred Phelps is a good. Um, that was actually the, this was mentioned in methods of rationality, but it was also a, a favorite psychological study from the '60s. Um, sheriff and Sheriff did the well. Long story short, the the robbers cave experiment in the 1960s or 50s, where you separate two groups of young boys into two two groups to try and encourage animosity. And all you have to do is separate them, mm-hmm. but unite them with a common enemy. And that enemy was Fred Phelps. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I think Yudkowsky uh, might have made a joke about this in one of his posts that, oh, in fact, it was the same it was the same one on the Robber's Cave experiment where, like, the world having a supervillain would actually be, like, handy in the sense that it would give us all somebody to unite against. And thus the plot of Watchmen. That's why I love <laughs> Watchmen so much. And uh, Harris makes the same point, and I think at the end of Faith, that barring an attack from outer space, we don't have, like something that humanity can rally against right mm-hmm. be cool global like warming climate. would be cool that's exactly what i was gonna <laughs> yeah. say it'd be cool if climate change could be that thing but global it's not for some reason have a face <laughs> yeah, you no. can't shoot at it yeah, yeah we gotta anthropomorphize global warming there's gotta the be someone in a costume jay's jay's blog post um 500 million but not one more was really good at that no was it no it wasn't that one it was um enemies with faces or something it was a very similar post about how yeah as soon as you can anthropomorphize a disease People are like, uh, what was it? If you told someone that uh, they can make a deal with this demon that has been murdering hundreds of humans throughout all of all of our history and only recently has been brought under control to where it's only killing a few humans a year, but you make a deal with him, we'll let you infect hundreds of thousands of people again if we can spy on our political enemies. Anyone who took that deal would be labeled a monster. But the U.S. did exactly that when they let CIA in through uh, the vaccinators, uh, the vaccination program in Afghanistan. And now there's a lot of people in Afghanistan and surrounding countries which don't let the vaccine crew people, volunteers, come through and vaccinate their kids because they use those to spy on their enemies. 
slight digression. Um, I do want to recommend the book. I think it was um on immunity, hmm. which was actually talking about um what is the science behind vaccinations and what is the history of vaccinations and why do people hate vaccinations. And uh, it's interesting because I read that thinking, okay, I know this, I've heard this a million times, but some of the uh, history and some of the biases that people have against vaccination was actually kind of news to me. One of them was colonization, where for like, you know, I have a hard time like, oh, okay, like Andrew Wakefield said this thing about autism, so I don't want to vaccinate my babies and I'm going to buy like a smallpox lollipop on the internet. And <laughs> I'm like, okay, I hate you. Mm-hmm. But um, people that are like, yeah, this force of colonization came and destroyed my country and then like was like doing all these terrible things to my people for so long, now wants to take my child and inject them with something mysterious. I don't trust that. And I'm like, well, uh, I have a hard time like hating you, (laughs) that you have a point. But no, this is a good thing they're going to inject your kid with. It's going to be great. It's more sympathizable. It's it's still a drag and it'd be nice if things hadn't shaken out historically to where it was so hard to sell like look do you want your kid to die terribly like your uncle did no well then seriously this is free we'll hook you up but it's at this point it's like yeah i've heard that before you know get the fuck out of here and it's hard to hard to fight that yeah Yeah, here here we're the saviors we're gonna come rescue you from your like tribal ways and it's like oh yeah that that sounds familiar Mm -hmm. yeah would you like to give me some blankets too (laughs) right Yeah. Early attempts at yeah. All right. Someone else also gave us small amounts of smallpox at one point. And <laughs> it didn't go so well for us then. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we've heard this story. Um, yeah. Where are we on this? Atheism rules. Religion rules. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> I haven't heard anything lined up that way in a long time. That was great. That was nostalgic. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the uh, Slice Star Codex article started out with quoting, I think, a Baffler article, which, like, I'm not actually familiar with the Baffler, where that was the argument, though, that, like, the new atheists are boring and dumb. Hmm. And that seemed to be, like, kind of why a lot of them went away, and there's all these, like, kind of triumphant, like, oh, remember those boring old new atheists? But it's coming from the the Blue Tribe, and it's kind of interesting because it's like, well, yeah, but they did actually have this effect on society, and now we're able to kind of, like, reap the best people and be like, yeah, but Muslims are a protected minority, and we love them. I find that a little bit awkward, where, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Somebody brought up, I think, I forget it was actually in the article itself, or maybe in the comments. I think it was the comments. No, it was in the article. Scott said this, too, um, that what one of hypothesis for what might have happened is that kind of the split between the blue and the gray tribe kind of happened. I didn't realize they were kind of... Red article, seminal po- uh, Scott's seminal post on the gray tri- tribe. This was the, uh, when I went and clicked it, it said, uh, I can hate, or I can tell everything except the out group. Oh, is that where he uh, pointed? That, well, I think that's that that okay. links to liberal, but I mean, still are liberal, but no longer identify with the political left because of all the crazy shit they do, and now are much more like the Silicon Valley, almost libertarian type word of key issues. Gotcha. Kind of like the Sam Harrisy folks then too. Yes. Okay. I would say he's pretty like. Sol- yeah, I think the difference is that I think Harris votes blue, whereas I think maybe a libertarian would vote libertarian. So I mean, the thing is, libertarians, at least the old school libertarians, always voted Republican. Which tribe is people who are disaffected with how shitty the Republicans are, whereas great tribe is people who are disaffected by how shitty the Democrats are. They're just the disaffected people at any point in time. Yeah. I was actually reflecting on this one with the left. <laughs> um, Please, old man yeah. Zuber, tell us about yeah. the problems. The left doesn't mind we we are fine attacking the shit out of ourselves and you know we can have somebody and you get that that mob big enough then that person's out and you've got a smaller group and so we're way less cohesive Mm -hmm. and i think this is a weakness of the republican party jesus christ where was this uh it's amazing it's like a it's she gets murdered every day it's a groundhog day movie Um, but she's getting murdered every time it's pg-13 and there's this scene where she 
so she, again, it's it was relevant. I promise. Mm. Honest Trailer is a YouTube series that does like four minute trailers of movies, but they're like satirical. Um, and then at the end, it'll do like starring, and it like makes up people instead of the actual characters. <laughs> murderer, and then the murderer is trying to kill her, and it looks like they're kind of like roughhousing on the bed. Mm-hmm. And this guy leans in, and he's like, "Hey!" and he closes the door. <laughs> and then it says like starring. This goes back to where on the right, it's much more common, I think, for um, no matter what, the world is like, "Hey, you're in our group. You're fine. You're with us." Yeah, and it's not a big deal being a member of the right than a member of the left because i feel like if i was a member of the left i would constantly be having to watch my back for people trying to stab me whereas if i was a member on the right i would be i can rape someone in the list that comes with that sort of loyalty yeah and it's it um i can see how that disenfranchises some people on the left to fall into this gray tribe meta note i'm noticing that the lines aren't like right now i'm talking it's not now it's back hello okay I'm sure it'll be close. I bet when you save, it'll say it lost some files, and we probably didn't lose a lot. I'm not sure what you could do to make it not do that. You've got space. I think I'm going to buy a a SSD drive because this is still an old school hard drive, and I think every now and then, like something else tries to access memory, Windows tries to update or some shit, and uh, I just need, I just need a better piece of computing. Put it on the podcast budget. Uh, Oh, yeah. Okay. That sounds like equipment that we can now afford. That sounds uh, like for the show, and so cool. All right, back off of animal liberation, back into rationality. We yeah, we are at nine o'clock, so we should probably move on to the less wrong post unless we have more stuff to say. I feel like there's a lot more to say about this, but maybe we should uh, kind of keep expanding on it in like successive episodes. Okay. On atheism or animal liberation? Oh, you know what? Those are two good good topics. They are. <laughs> yeah, we can come back to it. Sorry, this is sort of a meandery episode. I this kind of hits like not close to home, like in a bad way, but it, it's it's close to my heart. This these these were important figures in my development. Yeah. And, you know, they they had, like I said, different approaches and different messages, but they they kind of united around the, like, you know, reason first mentality. So I liked uh, I liked all of them growing up. It was fun. Yeah, they were they were I don't want to say proto-rationalists, but they were part of the budding of rationalism as well. Yeah, I think that was a lot of why they became rejected, actually. Like Stephen was kind of pointing this out earlier, but their message was not just God is stupid. How obvious is that? It was let's actually think about um what we're doing here, like our cognitive biases, the fact that we're not like examining our own beliefs or our own source documents. That's definitely, you know, the the beginnings of the rationalist movement is like, you know, why do we believe what we believe? Mm-hmm. That was actually, I think that I heard that from one of the four horsemen before I heard it from anyone in the rationality community. Like, what do we believe? And then how do, like, what do we know? How do we know it? Yeah. So yeah, like, you know, they had that kind of formative impact on a lot of people who now are in the rationality community. I think a lot of people did come from the atheism community. And some doubled back. I know that, uh, Harris, like, read the sequences, what, in the last couple... Or at least he read some of Yudkowsky's stuff. I don't know if he read all of it. I think he may have. He's talking about rationality from AI to zombies. Mm-hmm. And so he's kind of come full circle, which it's always fun to see, like, a big celebrity, you know, pitching... You know, rationality is not that fringe, but it's not like... It's not like atheism, where everybody knows what an atheist is. Yeah. So, yeah, I like the more celebrity involvement, the better. Well... Depends on the celebrity. G- give or take, yeah. Not necessarily a good thing, but it couldn't hurt. You know, well, it could hurt. You, you get what I'm saying. <laughs> yes. Exposure is nice. Yeah. All right, so speaking of the rationality from AI to zombies and sequences stuff, do we want to move on there? Let's move on to our uh, sequences. All right. Before we do, real quick, uh, the digression about um, the animal liberation stuff, I was thinking we just, it's totally unrelated to what we were talking about, and it kind of like happened, it started out with us standing, and do, well, I want to just cut that and put it in the uh, bonuses for Patreons. 
I was going to suggest that because that actually turned into kind of a cool discussion. But yeah, yeah. it's super unrelated. Yeah. Sounds good. But this part stays in so people know that there's Patreon-only content. Okay. If you want to, If you want to hear it start off kind of shady because we're all walking around and stuff, but then sit down and talk about animal rights and Peter Singer for 10, 12 minutes, that's out there on Patreon if you're a supporter of the podcast. Excellent. Perfect. All right. Moving on to the less wrong sequences. Post one, chronophone motivators. No, post one was Archimedes chronophone. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Post one. Archimedes <laughs> Crotophone. No, you're good. All right, so what's what's a Crotophone, Inyash? This a, is confusing. I know what Kronos is. Kronos is the god of time. Yes. Uh, I know what a phone is. Do you know what a Chrono Trigger is? I know what Archimedes <laughs> is. It's a video game I never played, but I owned for many years. You owned it, but didn't play it? Yeah, I bought it from a friend, and then I was like... Oh, it's such a good game. You should have uh, played it. What All is right. it? Video Chrono games? Trigger? Oh, you haven't what, heard of Chrono what, Trigger? What are you talking about? It, it is one of the most famous JRPG uh, games. Do you get to shoot a time gun? No, no, but oh. uh, you get to jump around through time, and part of the gameplay is like going back in time to change things, so then you can jump forward in time and reap some of the benefits of that. Nice. Yeah, and it's 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 got a whole lot of... It's a great storyline. It was good game mechanics. It was just the, one of the the height of the JRPG you know, phenomenon at that time. I'll point out that Ocarina of Time did the same thing. Okay. It, wasn't, it wasn't the point of the game, yeah, yeah, yeah. but there's a larger aspect of that involved yeah that was a major game mechanic and also um life is strange and wow here's another digression <laughs> and i think i'm the one who brought it up now i feel bad let's oh. go back to the archimedes chromophone okay chronophone no i, I mentioned chrono trigger i think that was me doesn't matter and the archimedes <laughs> chronophone anyways and prince of persia lets you rewind time and Shit. keep trying okay, oh, yeah. now, we're, now we're going on archimedes was a smart dude back in the day <laughs> he was uh he was like one of the leading the most famous mathematician of the ancient world i think right Sounds right. Or one of them. There's like Pythagoras yeah. and all those people around running around at that time. But. Right. Um, the post-Archimedes chronophone asks us to imagine that Archimedes invented a temporal telephone, or chronophone for short, which lets you talk to him. Um, from us in the 21st century to him in his century, and we can make suggestions to him. But the chronophone avoids transmitting overly anachronistic information. Doesn't want to screw things up too bad. So it transmits cognitive strategies rather than words. So if you follow the policy of check my brain's memory to see what my culture recommends as a wise form of political organization, you don't say to Archimedes, women should have the right to vote. What comes out of the chronophone is the result of Archimedes following the same policy and looking up in his brain what his aura lauds as the wise form of political organization. So it'd be something like find a very wise and just tyrant. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the same dilemma applies to scientific issues. If you say the Earth circles the sun, it comes out of the chronophone as the sun circles the Earth. It doesn't matter that our civilization is right and their civilization is wrong. The chronophone takes no notice of facts, only beliefs and cognitive strategies. You try to transmit your belief about heavenly mechanics, so it comes out as Archimedes' belief about heavenly mechanics. It's funny because the, the next thing he says is exactly my thinking, which is kind of like, all right, I'll lay out this like really careful step of like old school philosophy yeah. and we'll, we'll daisy chain you there. But why, yeah. why won't that work? Uh, he's <laughs> very good thing that you try <laughs> to do that, though. OK, if you try to do that, what comes out on Archimedes end is a careful style of Plato like ph philosophical analogies, which argue that wealthy male landowners should have special privileges. You followed the cognitive policy of come up with a line of philosophical arguments intended to persuade a neutral observer to my own era's point of view on political privilege. So what comes out of the chronophone is what Archimedes would think up if he followed the same cognitive strategy. And um, the point of this is to point out 
how hard it is to come up like with anything truly novel. Uh, I think Eliezer says later on uh, in the post, the really odd thing is that some point in time, someone must have turned against slavery, gone from pro-slavery to anti-slavery, even though they didn't start out wanting to persuade themselves against slavery. We we touched on the animal liberation thing. That was analogous to that with me. Okay. Uh, I'm still... I don't know. It's hard to be like an animal rights activist in the 21st century with Peter running around doing it all the wrong ways. But, but the message of like, you know, factory farms are a nightmare and we should be eating less meat. And, and animals uh, do have some level of sentience or at least some animals. Yeah. And that matters. Um, yeah. Those are messages that are important. Right. But those aren't things I started out believing. Yeah. Anyway, wanted to derail no. us for no reason. Oh, that, get, that wasn't get, a derail. I was directly, directly related. All right, cool. Tangent. Or wait, no, hold on. What do you call a parallel tangent? Right next to what we were talking about. What do you call I this? I think that was just on topic. Oh. <laughs> Damn. Well right. done, Stephen. Go, Stephen. <laughs> so, such unusual feeling for me. I felt like I was doing it wrong. Mm. Okay. And he points out humanity did not invent the scientific method by setting out to invent the scientific method, by looking for a garden path that would lead to the scientific method. If you know your desired destination, i.e. the scientific method, you're already there. So, um, yeah, the, the basic point is that to get non-obvious output, you need non-obvious input. If you say something that's considered obvious in your home culture, it comes out as something that's considered obvious in his culture. And the question, the challenge at the end, which I found I could not answer, although to be fair, I did not give it five minutes by the clock, is what advice do you give Archimedes and how do you say it into the chronophone? This is fun. I almost kind of want to take a five minute break to think of one because I didn't think about it really that much yet. All right. We could also all three of us just talk about it for five minutes. Does that work? Yeah, that's fair. Okay. So the constraint is that I can't just tell him a fact mm-hmm. because he'll look at like a relevant fact that he has in his head. Mm-hmm. So I also can't share with him like a moral conviction because he'll look at his similar mapped moral conviction. So I need to be more abstract than that. Yeah. Cognitive um, strategy. So a strategy, but like my strategy for like find the truth is the scientific method or something. And his strategy for find the truth is let's not say it's Archimedes and someone dumber and say it's like whatever, um, stargaze or something right or what do you call reading the stars right right oh plato's method for finding your truth was literally contemplate what the perfect nature is yeah you will never find things just by looking at the real world because the real world is but a shadow of the true forms of things well, the but, bummer but, but, is that but, um, plato was mostly wrong so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no well how do we get actually get the scientific method uh what i thought of immediately was alchemy and the idea wasn't like let's discover the scientific method it was let's transmute something into gold yeah. and the fact that they kept failing to transmit something into gold means that okay we didn't do it right something else okay we didn't do that right obviously this isn't the correct thing something else so something like iterative attempts at something with like a really high tolerance for failure a lot of the scientific method or the starting of it was just the practice of writing shit down yeah that's true you mean like well both your predictions and your results no uh, just also, the results even yeah writing it down but also like testing it first because i think a lot of there was this armchair philosophizing about you know, okay here's how the heavens work here's how the humors work and people were just like okay that sounds right but if you're trying to tran- you know transmute something into gold if it's not gold at the end of that process then you fucked up yeah, 700 years ago, like, it was just natural philosophy was the closest thing we had to science. And that was people like um, like Aristotle going out to the beach and lining up a bunch of dead animals and just, like, this looks kind of like that. These things are closely related, mm-hmm. which, like, was better than anyone had ever done. But he also had some weird shit. I think we mentioned this once before, that, like, men have more teeth than women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, it's like, and no one ever counted. Mm-hmm. No one counted, right? Well, then again, actually, um, how many people had all of their teeth right. during that time period? And somebody, somebody wrote in with the correction on, maybe I got something wrong there, but so he, he made errors kind of that basic. But, but what he did was he was out there cataloging stuff. And that was like 
and innovation. <laughs> um, so yeah, writing stuff down is a big step. I mean, I know a lot of the early scientists, not really scientists, but I mean, they started out as hobbyists who were just like, I'm really interested in birds. I'm going to write down every bird I observe. And, you know, oh, these these star, I'm really interested in stars. I think Tycho Brahe had like 10 years of observations of just the movements of the planets just written down every night. He's like, this is the, this is the coordinates where this was at. And just tomes of data, which he kept because he was a weird eccentric dude. And, you know, Kepler used that to, to form his theories of motion. Human right. databases. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> just writing things down. It's having people meet. They're like, we're really interested about this aspect of the natural world. Let's talk about it and write down everything we see. Yeah. And, and eventually science grew from that. I think observation is a really good first step and like kind of a value of the scientific method. Uh, yeah. And also writing it down. So recording your observations, would that turn into anything if you told uh, Archimedes, record your observations? I think so. Because we already know... It's like interacting with a malicious genie who's like determined to misinterpret you. Right. So how would Archimedes misinterpret write down what you what you discover? Well, because we already know it's a good idea to write things down and to compare data. So for Archimedes, it would be like, it's a really good idea to consult a wise man who uh, who has this knowledge. But the difference is like we're saying not how to get it. We're saying how to share it or store it. So like what The wise man is a store of knowledge, right? And he shares it with people who ask him. Okay. Mm. But Archimedes, Archimedes also did experiments and stuff. Like, he, he was able to measure, like, the volume of, like, weirdly shaped objects by placing them in water and measuring the displaced water, right? Right, yeah. Was that Archimedes? That was, I believe so. Wasn't it the whole bathtub Eureka thing? I think that was Archimedes. Um, I don't think so, but I don't know. Some, but, well, Archimedes in particular, whoever it is we're talking to, some Greek, yeah. <laughs> skimming the comments to try and cheat. And I, I, I've noticed this, you know, years ago, but it's funny. Robin Hansen's handle on less wrong is robin hansen too <laughs> i don't know if he forgot robin hansen or someone else took it but that's really funny to me well we've we've used up our five minutes yeah we only get five minutes well, oh wait I mean, yeah that, we, okay i see yeah. what you mean okay um yeah that was that was our committees all right anyone want to guess what robin hansen's advice was wait um, make prediction markets you're halfway there <laughs> all right bet on things yeah robin hansen said 12 years ago that it would it would sure help if you could speak into one end and then hear how it comes out of the other end and then edit and repeat if so i try and encourage him to make useful devices that make money and create a tradition of this activity cool. <laughs> yeah well again that was the gold um you, you need like an incentive to get things right we think it's pretty obvious nowadays though that economic advancement is a good idea it's not even necessarily well, i guess it's also economics because if you for example cure a disease now you can sell the cure but but yeah, no, that, that's good, Robin Hanson, actually. I was trying to think of um, a way to phrase that, of like, find something that people actually care about getting the answer right about, whether it's curing a disease or whether it's transmuting gold, and then be like, pursue this, uh, try a lot of things, be really open to failure, iterate, whatever that would come out as in Archimedes' time, I don't know. Well, I mean, I don't, I think they already have the values of truth is good and persistence and hard work is good. That but, wouldn't be new information we'd be yeah, giving them. But then why were people, you know, able to just like make up shit about how many teeth people had or how the stars worked? And then everybody was like, sounds right. <laughs> like yeah, it, it didn't matter what it, what the truth was because nobody was making money off of it or uh, curing a disease or, you know, nobody's life depended on it. That's actually that adds more actual wisdom, I think, to Robin Hansen's reply. I sort of just took it as like a funny, like, of course, you're an economist. You'd say make money. <laughs> but that's super uncharitable. I didn't really think about it as I was reading it. Obviously. You can make money on super valuable discoveries. And if you find something that, hey, look, it turns out if you put your hands in, you know, like whatever clean salt water and rub them around a little bit, 
and then you do surgery, people die a lot less. You know, something like that. You could sell that knowledge and save lives or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, if it has money, there's there's incentive. That's actually a good suggestion. That sadly was not borne out by what actually happened in history. No. When it was proven that washing your hands reduces mortality of sp- uh, in surgery by a fuck ton, people were like, we don't believe you. Are you s- implying that we're dirty doctors? And, like, it didn't catch on for, I think, 20 years after that. As far as Even how long it takes things to catch on pre-internet, that's, you'd, you'd that's think not that the worst. People would have, you know, been able to make money by not killing their patients as quickly. And you'd think doctors would be interested in anything and yeah. able to interpret statistics. And yes, it was a whole sad affair. Even yeah, even more recently, um, Atul Gawande wrote the Checklist Manifesto, where yeah. he was, um, you know, advocating for have a checklist of the things that you need to do when you're performing surgery or doing some kind of medical operation, because often people are, you know, humans and they're prone to human error. And also nurses and doctors work crazy schedules and they forget stuff like, whoops, I sewed that patient up with the scalpel in their chest or, you know, (laughs) having a checklist. It seems like such an obvious thing, but people are like, oh, are you saying that I'm like stupid and I need a checklist? I'm a doctor. I've got, you know. Yeah, there was a lot (laughs) of pushback against the checklists. I feel like that's kind of the same thing, too, where like, you know, somebody who's not an expert in this field is coming in and being like, hey, guess what? Use salt water. They're like, yeah, okay. Who's the doctor here? (laughs) Anyways. Uh, Yeah, that's that's just a bummer. Not rationalists are doing that, though. Rationalists would be like, that's one of the strengths of of rationality. Argument from authority. (laughs) <laughs> well, our, well, yeah, so we see that as, well, I, I kind of the reverse. Like, I'm an authority. Why should I listen to you? But a rationalist would be like, oh, you've got data? Give me, right? <laughs> I certainly te- hope so. That's kind of the goal. Yeah. Yeah. Like, if you tell me, I would think that if I was a surgeon, I'd be like, I, w- I would totally understand where they're coming from. I'm the fucking doctor. I've been doing this for 15 years. I almost never screw up. Why do I need your stupid suggestion, you non-doctor? Right. But if you were a true Bayesian, you would say, oh, wow, you've got survey studies or whatever data that show that this actually does reduce incidences. Well, if you're a true Bayesian, you also have to take into consideration how much you trust your source. And maybe they didn't trust the source of that guy since he was not a doctor. You know, they're like, what could you possibly know? This is more, you know, scamming, trying to get money from us or something. Trying to build up your own name so you can sell a lot of books. Yeah, but all right, fair enough. But it's, you know, just back and forth on that. It's a very low cost thing to hang this thing up and try it for a year, right? You only have to pay for the piece of paper once. And it's probably like eight cents. So oh. I guess medical grade papers, ten dollars. <laughs> I thought you were talking about um the hand washing. Atul Gawande is no. like actually I, f- I forget what his position was at the time. I think he was like the the head of like a bunch of hospitals and <laughs> actually like a very authoritative figure. I think that the checklist thing does have a cost though. It you can't just go right in and do your surgery. You have to go through this tedious checklist every single time, and that's a pain in the ass. Yeah, I have a checklist. It adds a step. Yeah, I have a checklist at work for the the closing of the the accounts that I do every month. I update that checklist two weeks later when I'm all done because I'm like, I don't have time for this fucking checklist right now. I got to do my work and I'm already working long hours. Well, that's that's mm-hmm. a bummer. On the plus mm-hmm. side, on my procedure today, I was able to watch because I could see like they've got the the some sort of x-ray, but it's like live. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it's on x-rays because I didn't have anything covering my, my nethers, but um, <laughs> my... I they can't see your penis on an X-ray anyway. There's no bones in it. Oh, the, it wasn't. It wasn't a telescope. That's not my point. The <laughs> <laughs> nice. um, um, no, the uh, I was more worried about X-rays damaging my sperm, right? Oh, and giving me cancer. okay. But I could see where the needles were and stuff, and watching them putting and dye and all that. And luckily, I, since I was able to watch, I could see him take them both out because he put in like little prep needles and stick stuff into them and then pull those things out. I'm pretty sure I'd be able to feel it like this too. But it was just you know. I could see they did all the right stuff because I was able to watch. So, hmm. not re- that's a tangent. That wasn't related at all. Yeah. Okay. Damn it, Stephen. You were doing so good. <laughs> so I think the main point of Archimedes Chronophone was to set up the next post, Chronophone Motivators. 
which uh, I thought made some really interesting points. Uh, so Elias starts up by saying the challenge is supposed to be difficult. It's really hard to get somewhere when you don't already know your destination. If there were some simple cognitive policy you could follow to spark moral and technological revolutions without your home culture having advanced knowledge of the destination, you could execute that cognitive policy today. That actually, I, I'm going to go back to, I didn't read all the comments, but that, that again is the one of the wisdoms of Robin's answer. Like making money was already a value two thousand years ago, right? Presumably, or, yeah, whatever. I mean, sort of. Was. It was. It was depending on your culture. It was often really looked down upon. Like uh, merchants were dirty, and it was really uh, a scandal when they started gaining political power because they didn't come to it honestly. Yeah, not making money, having money, having money in your family, being an aristocrat. Right, right. Having money is good. Making money makes you like a dirty merchant trader person it's a nouveau riche yeah that's <laughs> such a like old and i totally to see what you're saying because you're right merchants are you know these these thieves who you know steal stuff and sell it kind of like today yeah um <laughs> they're all used car salesmen it's rich right. people's like look at this person trying to become a rich person like me yeah. when they weren't born into it yeah. yeah you're right having money made you awesome but trying to yeah. trying to have money made you <laughs> shit yeah all right we're weird so i don't know how you, had to, how you would have successfully got that to him i guess if you could get past the like earning money part and just have the have money part, then it's mm-hmm. worth five years of people hating you, maybe? Yeah. I mean, obviously, a lot of people thought it was worth it. Yeah. There, there were a bunch of people who got money and power. Fair enough. All right. So uh, I, I found this interesting comparison to the modern day. He points out that one of the commenters, Gur, suggested teaching Archimedes decimal notation. If you speak decimal notation, our culture's standard representation numbers into the chronophone, then the chronophone outputs standard representation numbers used in Syracuse. But... Elias did note, place notation is revolutionary because it makes it easier for ordinary people, not just trained accountants, to manipulate large numbers. Maybe an, maybe an equivalent new idea in our own era would be Python, which makes it easier for, novice pro, for novices to program computers. Coming up with that chronophone input suggests that maybe we should pay more attention in this era to Python. Which I was like, that is a new and non-obvious conclusion that he just reached. Am, am I doing something wrong by not knowing Python? I think that that's actually a pretty common um, sentiment now where they're trying to like push every child in school to learn programming. That's become a new thing. Uh, I don't know if our incentives are coming from the right place because it's not like people are like, oh, these kids need to learn programming because that way we're going to elevate the human race. I think a lot of that is coming from we need to teach these kids Python so that like they will have employment. Right. <laughs> Which, um, again, it's the economics thing. So it's not like I, I don't want to say that having money is bad or that trying to gain social status or whatever is bad. Well, Unless you're a Python developer right now, <laughs> which case your uh, marketability is going to plummet here soon when there's a bunch of high school graduates who can do entry level work. But I mean, that's how initial literacy and numeracy came about, too. Right. It was economically useful for people to know it. And eventually we were like, this is so useful. The whole human race should have these skills. I feel like I'm missing something. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think it's obvious, at least I didn't until now, that everyone should know Python the same way I think everyone should know. Cursive? No. They still teach cursive, Fuck right? cursive. I, that everyone should know how the to write. decimal system and, yeah, and know how to use numbers and how to read. My thing with cursive was just that I think that they're teaching kids a lot of stuff that's outdated and not very useful nowadays. Oh, right. <laughs> like cursive. Luckily, yeah. they're not teaching cursive in a lot of places, though. Yeah, I think they have much, actually Much stopped. the chagrin of our grandparents. Yeah, no, I, I actually met somebody recently who, like, was like, huh, people don't even know how to do cursive anymore. My, like, I don't know, my, my kid or my grandkid or whatever doesn't even understand cursive, and she's laughing, and I'm just like, uh, yeah, but she could probably fix your phone. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> shut up, Grandma. You just gave half your, half your life savings to a Nigerian prince. So. <laughs> 
Yeah, when you forget how to log into Facebook and you call on your grandkid and you can't write them a letter in cursive to ask for their help. So tough shit. Yeah. But this is coming from somebody who tries to make a living programming. Like, it's not clear to me what the benefit is to the average person. Like, hold on. If you could quickly automate simple tasks that lots of times people go through the more tedious way. I mean, the whole point of it is that it's supposed to be non-obvious, right? Like, yeah, but like a thousand years ago, people would have been like, why do my children need to know about decimal notation and how to manipulate numbers? It's not a useful skill in their farming. Yes. Yeah, so like if you do basic scripting and you're doing like similar things most days or something, that'd be nice. But it's not clear that most people have the applicability to put that in their lives. I don't know about again, Python, but like basic kind of computer language literacy. Computer like, literacy, like just how to cut yeah. and paste and all that stuff. I well, mean, look, that sounds super valuable. I'm an accountant. I don't do math every day. I don't even do math every week, really, but I still think it's good to know how to do math for the times when you do need it. That's, that's what I'm struggling with, because, yeah, it's it's valuable for me. Yeah, again, I, I don't do math that much either. Like, it's just... Even reading and writing. There's some people that just never read a book after school, but the fact that people are literate as opposed to not is just such, like, a force multiplier for people having mm. the ability later on in life to elevate themselves or to develop new interests or just communicate with people. Just the ability to see information that is stored in the physical world is super handy. Like... Yeah, I, I I heard about a guy who was a, a long haul truck driver who couldn't read, and whenever he like needed to get some places where he needed to read signs, he would call someone up and he's like, "Yeah, I'm kind of lost right now. Can you tell me is there like a landmark nearby or something?" And I mean, eventually some people caught on, but didn't know how to read. Kind of a kind of a handicap when so much information is stored in written form all around us. Yeah, that's weird to think about. I mean, I'd like to think that actually I did this. I can confirm, even though I can't. Well. I don't know if I ever did this like to save my life on the highway, but I did do this a little bit in Japan. Like I can't read Japanese, but I could look at what the place is called on my phone in the whatever the the kanji mm -hmm. and just you know line, line it like up that. and be like that looks the same. This is probably it. You weren't trying to drive down the highway. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, I wasn't on the interstate. Yeah, maybe that's the point. Is like a lot of these things aren't like the things that you need to do to live every day, but mm -hmm. it sure is a handy tool to be able to like do basic addition um, mm -hmm. when you're grocery shopping or something. Yeah, or just have a framework of understanding of like a big, I don't know, I keep wanting to say the word magisteria and that's a terrible word. What <laughs> am I thinking? A paradigm? Maybe a big paradigm because so much of our lives is digital now and it's just going to become more and more of that. And if kids don't know how to program, I almost feel like that's like not knowing how to read where mm -hmm. maybe kids didn't need to know how to read, quote unquote, when there was mostly agricultural stuff going on. But like the industrial revolution shifted everything so far in the other direction that those kids would have gotten left behind real quickly. Yeah. And also like just, I feel like it, it's almost depriving somebody of understanding something that's so integral and so interesting to, I'm, I'm having like a failure of being able to come up with words again, somebody else talk. No, I think I know <laughs> what you're saying though. And if anything, I moved to learn more Python. I know the very basics, but this actually sounds useful. I've never written a Python script for something to do at home to be like, hey, you know, I've actually thought about this too. Like when you download a torrent program, and I'm sure there's already things, tools that do this online for you, but I'm not, I'm not sure where they are. Mm -hmm. You get whatever game dot thrones dot or whatever game. And it's all separated by periods and mm -hmm. it's got the year and like whatever the torrenters name on it. I've never done this, of course, because I'm a good, you know, whatever yes. copyright loving American, but um, <laughs> I've heard tell of mm. this type of thing. It'd be super easy to, to write something that recognizes the, the period spacing and just replace that with spaces and then give everything proper capitalization. Mm. That sounds super doable. I should do something like that. Yeah. And Python sounds like a great language for it too. Okay, cool. Fun good, fun idea. I'm writing this down. Steal. Stealing, yeah. my own, stealing my own ideas. So the point that was made is that most of what we desperately want to say to Archimedes is not obvious relative to Archimedes' culture. This strongly suggests that the most important things the future would want to say to us are, amazingly enough, not things that everyone already knows. 
If you want to really benefit humanity, you've got to do some original thinking. Come up with the sort of non-obvious idea that you would speak into a chronophone. And you have to do some hard thinking about areas of application and directions of effort. You can't just run off in the direction of what your contemporary culture has instilled as the reflex answer to the question, how can I benefit humanity? And I think this is really like knowing now what I know about where the rest of the sequence is going. I see that this is where he's setting us up for, yeah, this AI shit sounds really weird, especially here in 2008. But I'm talking to you from the future. <laughs> right. But like, <laughs> you're going to have to do some weird thinking and stuff that does not come to mind automatically when people say, how can I benefit humanity? If you really want to actually benefit humanity the same way that someone from the future could benefit Archimedes society. That's what I love about Yudkowsky's approach to everything is that, I mean, the sequences weren't just for him to get, you know, ad revenue on less wrong, right? Right. The whole, the whole goal was to raise the sanity waterline enough to get enough people. And luckily he's a good writer and he's charismatic and all that helps. And so from when he started writing the sequences to when Miri got like sufficient funding took what, 15 years, something like that. 10 and to 15. Yeah. Just what a couple of years ago, some, one of their, one of the early less wrongers was one of the people who made a fortune on Bitcoin mm -hmm. and, uh, they now they now no longer have funding uh, needs, right? So mm -hmm. this this paid off. The whole thing was, you know, let's get people on. I, that's if that's not long term awesome strategies and taking a novel approach to solving a problem, I don't know what is. Yeah. It not only paid off in getting Miri funded and noticed and everything, but now there's people that can work on these things because they've had this training. Yeah. In rationality. Yeah. I think that's really cool. No, it's fantastic. Was that the whole? Second one. Um, yeah, the, the wrap-up was the point of the chronophone dilemma is to make us think about what kind of cognitive policies are good to follow when you don't know your destination in advance. If you can just tell Archimedes to build a capitalist society because your culture already knows that's a good idea, it defeats the purpose of the dilemma. The chronophone, hey, yeah, <laughs> the chronophone transmits cognitive policies, not sentences. What sort of thinking are we doing now that is analogous to the thinking that we wish Archimedes had done then? And I think this is when people ask us what good is rationality, I think this is basically the answer that rationality is about trying to find good cognitive policies not necessarily like good actual answers but good policies that work to yeah get us to these goals that we didn't know we had yeah yeah and didn't, that we didn't know we had is i think the the crux there right because i certainly wasn't really concerned about ai before i read this stuff and it took years of getting into the community before i really thought about it yeah, i think that rationality isn't necessarily how to achieve a goal it's how to have find the right like this is the right mental tools to to be able to pursue your goals in general yeah, yeah. we had our monthly meetup last night and there were a couple first timers and um wait at least one first timer when newcomers come and if they're not already have they, if they haven't drank drank the kool-aid they're kind of like <laughs> what do you guys do what are you guys about mm -hmm. and it's not really like a skeptic meetup where it's like oh we talk about you know uh consumer protection you know about like not buying snake oil and you know not uh giving all your money in tithes to those damn religious people we don't I mean, there's there's things that is popular in rationality, EA, AI, mm -hmm. other uh, abbreviations for things, <laughs> but it's more about yeah, fostering a community. Of the, I mean, as far as the meetup, that's what I told somebody last night. You know, because when we had dinner, when Robin Hansen came for Harris's podcast, a few of us got to chill with him. He asked, like, what does your guys' community do? And I'm like, nothing. <laughs> but that's not the right answer. The right answer, the real answer, not just the right one, is that like learn how to think. Exactly. Well, he said, like, some people, some groups that he goes to, like, they're doing, like, the next blockchain, whatever, this person's doing this, whatever. But all we're doing is kind of cultivating a community of the, that sort of mindset. And so it's it's a group of sane people that I can talk to 
and say, what do you guys think about this? That I can trust them to actually know how to assess that and give me reason, you know, fe- feedback that matters. Yeah. And hopefully I can do the same for them. Right. Right. So, you know, you can do all of this in your basement, reading less wrong if you want, but doing it in real life gives you that external, I guess, motivator and uh, sounding board, you know, cause you can't do it. You probably can't do it perfectly by yourself. Having other people to do this, do thinking with makes who would have thought collaboration <laughs> is useful right, <laughs> right. <laughs> i get a lot of value out of again the uh kind of productive peer pressure or like the positive peer pressure if um i'll actually like actively ask people now now that I, like it's cool because i know people in the community who it's like hey you want to go to the library with me and then like we can force each other to do things that we want to do but like aren't doing right now mm-hmm. and that was something that i could never get in like my other social circles because it would be like people would pay lip service to the idea and then not do it in this community people actually will do it i love that I like that too. And even though we didn't go to the library on Tuesday together, I went to the library by myself and did flowers. <laughs> so trickle um. down effects. <laughs> so Stephen, what are we going to be talking about next time? Next week we have actually one of the most popular, I guess popular to me, probably mm-hmm. to other people, but that's the so the first one is self-deception, self-deception, hypocrisy or acrasia, which sounds fun. And mm-hmm. then the other one, which sounds way more fun is Saruko Naritai, which is Japanese for I want to become stronger. That was a damn good post. Uh, yeah, it was fun, and yeah. I think that one's it's memorable one of the ones that too. sticks out in my memory. Yeah, yeah. I still I mean, say that to myself. Nice, yeah. Be like played. I haven't read it, I think, in years and years, but yeah, I remember it. And that's sort of the uh, the final message that Harry has for himself in Methods of Rationality. It's like I need to level up my game. It's and that's valuable, right? And hopefully, it doesn't take almost destroying the world to to do that. So. <laughs> um, and that's we will have links to it on less not less wrong Jesus on uh, <laughs> thebayesianconspiracy.com if you would like to read uh, ahead along with us and then we'll talk about it in our next episode in two weeks yeah cool and we don't have a patron to name this week what we do have is somebody who wanted to remain anonymous but they joined us I guess what almost two weeks ago and yeah. uh, they more than doubled our podcast income which is yeah. great it blew our mind i contacted him tw- i contacted <laughs> the person twice to say are you sure you didn't like mean to press a, a decimal point here <laughs> it's an extra um, zero that uh, wasn't supposed to be there yeah yeah so but it um, turns out no no it, it was intentional very generous awesome patron yeah. yeah so what we plan to do with that that income is to upgrade our equipment first things first we noticed that's what led to our tangent on animal rights was stopping to talk about the computer uh, there might be some lossy uh data here we're not sure but it looks like there might have been yeah we'll find uh, out we're going to buy a solid-state drive, so that shouldn't happen for that anymore. Maybe some new microphones yeah, or something. Yeah, possibly. If you find, like, a microphone that you think is good, let me know. Yeah, I'll definitely look into it just because it would be nice to have one record record remotely that doesn't totally suck. Yeah. But, yeah, anyway, that blew our mind. And yeah. uh, I just wanted that to let... That was amazing. I wanted to thank let, you again. Yes, thank you. I wanted to let you know that everyone here is aware of it, and it's uh, your generosity is remarkable. And so is every generosity of every person who ever wants to donate us, you know, throw us a buck. Definitely. It all, it all matters. Yeah. You know, this all goes to keeping the lights on, keeping the show online, and not costing... Actually, Inyash started up putting everything online, so it was really costing him money at first. Right. <laughs> um, for, like, the first year, and year and a half. Yeah. That reminds me, when did we... We're coming up on, what, episode 78? Oh, that's not a big anniversary, but it's, what, almost three years? Is it? When did we start? Uh, well, if we're doing every an episode every two weeks, uh, 52 would have been two years. Yeah. Yeah, we're coming right up on on three years. We might have just passed it. Okay. Cool. And next month, to us. next month is our four year anniversary for our local Les Wrong meetups. Yes. Yeah. Party. Yeah. I'm getting old. That's what I I'm know. hearing here. I, 
I have some listener feedback about that, but we are out of time because it's 9.30. About aging? Yeah. Speaking of getting old, <laughs> it's also getting late. Oh, so. Yeah. so we're going to have to get back to the listener feedback next time because there were a number of cool things that I wanted to hit on from the listeners, and we just ran out of time again. Sounds good. I will just point out to Taylor Vulcan that I read the Slate Star Codex post he links to, and that was really cool, and I want to talk about it, and we will. Next okay. time. Yeah. Cool. All righty. Yeah. Um, so that's what we got for this week's episode, or this, I say week. I know, bi- it is this week. Think for this bi-week's episode. Yeah. Um, someone asked, they their Patreon, or not their Patreon, their uh, podcast feed is drying up, and I totally sympathize with that. And I have an idea for an off-week podcast mm-hmm. that isn't the Bayesian Conspiracy okay. that I think would be a lot of fun. Okay. And that's cooking, but I'm not pitching the idea yet. I just wanted, if anyone's interested that there's something brewing, stuff's brewing. That's that's what I wanted to get out there. Okay. Yeah. Oh, super okay. Cr- super fun. Super oh, cryptic. Oh, oh also, um, speaking of things that happen not related to the podcast, uh, I, I wanted to mention that I was recently uh, – the serial novel i'm putting out online what lies dreaming i recently got it accepted i guess included in um the web fiction online which lists a bunch of them so you can now vote for it every week uh once a week if you want to at uh top web fiction and i will post a link here and yeah it helps out if you want to do that there's a little link at the bottom of every chapter as well a little link at the bottom of the front page and it'll get the word out to more people if you're reading it oh that's awesome yeah I'll include the link this one time because I mentioned it in this podcast, but definitely not everyone. We'll also include a link to your book, which <laughs> should be there. Okay. Um, which is great. I've only read the first chapter. All right. Well. But oh, I, it's not because I didn't have fun with it because I'm bad at juggling new oh. characters and names and stuff. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I would like to finish Ward first, but honestly, it's going to be like another two years. So <laughs> maybe I'll just, I've, I've got some time. I'll get caught up on yours. But if you're a good someone. writer, everyone should check them out. Oh, thank you. And I'm not just saying that. Yeah, can confirm. Yeah, if you sucked, I'd be like, eh, it's not for me. But that's not what I'm saying. So, it's great. 